Hello, and you are very welcome to episode 123 of the Game Pit Podcast. My name's Ronan, and if you usually listen, it's Sean that does this bit. He's not with me today. We have been working hard on six reviews, which are coming next week on Essen Games. But in between, uh, I've been off to LobsterCon. Now, Sean and Natalie couldn't make it. They had to do some adulting and parenting and what have you. So I had to get someone in alongside me. And for this episode, I've got Puria on board. Welcome back, Puria. Oh, thank you very much. I've come once again to fill some very big shoes. You can dance around within those shoes and what did you drop? This is a good start. It's like having Sean here where you're dropping things all over the place. Anyway, like he's never left. Um, well, it's kind of a funny time of year because we get all excited about leading up to Essen and we do our live shows. We make it clear that those are first impressions and then we want to do our reviews, but we're starting from scratch on the six games we want to play. And to get six games played enough times that we're comfortable to review them takes quite a while. Now, the next ones that we're going to review, we've already started playing them a little bit because obviously players get mixed up and what have you. So always after Essen, we have this kind of funny dead zone where it's, ah, we're frantically trying to play the game. So we usually fill it, if you've noticed, with a LobsterCon episode. Now, LobsterCon is the twice-a-year London on board convention where it was about 135 people this time. We go down and take over a hotel on the south coast of England, and we play various games, and Puria was there. This was LobsterCon 16. Puria, I've been to 15. You've been to... 14, I want to say. Oh, newbie. newbie I see. I, <laughs> I can pull seniority. <laughs> I'll never I'll never make it up as well. <laughs> you might. You might. I nearly missed this one. I wasn't feeling well. Anyway, when we're down there, there's a con in November, and that's always post-Essen, obviously, and that's this one. It's the shorter one. It's the more hectic one. Lots of the newer Essen games get played, and there's one in May, which is the bank holiday, and it's always longer. That always stretches to four or five days, and it's more relaxed and more kind of different esoteric things get played. But I think we're showing that we're jaded here, Puria, because we played a real mix of old and new games at this LobsterCon. Yeah, I think not just uh, your tradition of... Getting drunk and playing a bit of Eldritch, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. But uh, Oh, we will get to that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as you say, we're increasingly getting in just a few classic games that just become part of the schedules. It, it takes a bit of time away from the new stuff, but I think it's a point to look forward to every year. It's always nice to come back to. The deeper I get into it, the more, and it, it, lots of people say it, the more it's just about hanging out with the people and maybe slightly less about the exciting games because we can play them back home. There's lots of people excited to play them, but just going out to Eastbourne and hanging out with certain people, going for a meal, having a drink, that's as much of the experience as is the gaming. Yeah, absolutely. And I can never miss an opportunity to teach you a game uh, drunk either. <laughs> now we've been over this i can't teach games anymore <laughs> we've really from doing all these pit stop videos i cannot remember this even if i play the game 20 times i struggle to remember the rules yeah and it's not helped by what we call lobster con brain which is usually uh just about sunday morning so lack of <laughs> sleep, sleep deprivation <laughs> far far too many drinks Anyway, it would be a boring episode if we were to talk about the food and drinks the whole time. We are going to have a quick run through. Now, the games we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about 21 games, but it's not going to be the sort of in-depth stuff you usually get. It's just going to be a quick overview. Now, there's going to be some new ones, there's going to be some old ones, there's going to be some repeat plays. We might be talking about things we mentioned before, just to tell you an update on our plays for them. Hopefully, it will be some entertainment for you. We're going to split it up, so sit back, relax, and we are going to open up with Keyforge after this short break. 
So let's crack on. Keyforge, the new hotness. We're going to burn our fingers on this one. It's the unique deck game from Fantasy Flight Games, two-player, in which every deck you buy is a unique to yourself. Now, I have played three times only, and I've only played with the base decks, although I bought six on release day. Most of them have been given away to people. I kept a couple for myself. But Rachel and I have been playing it, just concentrating on playing those base games so that we have a basis from which to explore the game so that the new decks will be more exciting and we have some context for them when we open them up rather than just open them up and going, I don't know what these cards are, I don't know what any of the cards are, I don't really know what's going on. Have you played it more often than that, Priya? Yeah, I think we played maybe four or five times over the weekend, but we didn't really have any base decks to go off, so we just jumped straight in. And I think for anyone who's played... Invalidating every point I just made, lovely. Well, it's fine. I think anyone who's played (laughs) Magic or Hearthstone can pretty much jump straight in. It's uh, very familiar. There's nothing really onerous around it besides the classic kind of keyword salad that you have to work your way through. It's always going to get compared back to Magic, uh, inevitably. Just due to the style of it, I think all two-player draw games get compared, but even more so because of the Richard Garfield link. To me, initially, it's got its own limits on what you can do, and it's the house system. So every deck has got three houses, and when you are taking your turn, you choose one of your three houses, and you can only play and use cards off that house. Now, you'll have creatures out in front of you. They don't attack the other player directly. They can only attack each other, or they can collect something called Ember. You need to collect six Ember at the beginning of your turn in order to forge a key. If you do that three times, you'll win the game. The other player can steal Ember from you. So if you've got the end of your turn, it's not a fixed situation. Anyway, the limitation to it is you can only play and activate cards of one house so you could have six creatures available off one house and your hand of six cards could be five of them of another house and then you have a choice to make there of do i use these creatures or do i get more cards out now rather than a mana system so every card in your hand is available to play to me i found it less frustrating than a mana system in magic bro yeah the hand management obviously comes into it and uh, you know you spend a lot of time flushing your hand of one deck to consolidate the houses for the next turn and the choices about, especially when you've got different creatures on the board, which house to activate is actually quite interesting without ever feeling like, oh, I don't have the resources to play. I've only ever really played Android or a bit of Doomtown and Conquest, all of which died as soon as I started. So I do feel a little bad for that. <laughs> and you've only ever played Netrunner really badly with me. So yes. it doesn't really count. <laughs> Uh, so it's really liberating in that way, and I think it makes it a great game just to jump into. For the audience it's going after, which I think is casual play, it does that really well. In terms of casual play as well, one of the things I've heard some complaints from people who play once or twice is that they were saying it's taking 45 minutes for a game. Have you got any thoughts on that? I'm not sure the game's ever going to stretch to that long. I think if it's a learning game, you might struggle with concepts around uh you know the keywords and everything else we've talked about the game itself is never going to be that long and i think by the nature of the key forging clock you have in essence because as you say you you gather ember with your creatures even playing cards out of your factions generates it so unless i haven't experienced because i can imagine some of the other factions might steal at the resources which would guess drive the game backwards Um, i really can't see how the game can go on indefinitely highly recommend people use the learning decks learn the concepts and then from there on I, I don't see this being any longer than you know 20 minutes yeah i agree i think the first game took us north of 30 minutes but it was a lot of learning and it had a funny decision not to put the full rule book in the box there's a, a leaflet a four-page leaflet that guides you through maybe it's 
sort of personal but I would much rather have had the proper rule book and it says if you need to know any more go online well no I've, I've bought the base set give me the rule book I think that might be leading to slightly protracted initial plays for people yeah and, and really confusingly having read both now as an experienced gamer I actually found the stuff that was in the leaflet quite intuitive and I really could have just been told that in a couple of words it was all the keywords that they had online that I actually needed for reference a reference sheet, yeah, yeah, or a player aid, or that's what that means and that's what this means would be. Yeah. That would do the job, right? And that would cut at least 10, 15 minutes away from that initial frustration uh, when you're going through it. And you just, yeah, a couple of little things about are things always in play? Are they always valid? I texted you about it, didn't I? Because I had a card that was exhausted, but it has a text effect, but it wasn't linked to a particular action or phase. And I was like, so is that, does that count or not? It does count, apparently, it counts all the time you're saying about stealing yeah in that initial set you've got one deck that's the one i've been playing with which has got untamed and logos which are like creatures and robots which is good for getting lots of small creatures out and reaping quickly they've also got like um sanctum with them that, that defend those creatures but the other deck the rage i've been playing with is dis and Brodnar and shadows and especially the shadows one a lot of it is elusive little creatures that only take one damage to kill but you have to hit them twice uh, in the same turn otherwise they won't go away and you can just reap with them all the time and then they steal a lot of cards that play and steal so you're very much deciding when i say inside that house thing you're deciding your style of play and what house to focus on in each phase and you can sort of ebb and flow from going from one style to another throughout the course of the game you're not locked in and what i think one of the clever things i did it, a lot of it seems to be to take stress off the player, to just allow them to play and have fun and, and do what they want with their cards. So you can discard cards from your hand. It has to be of the house you've chosen and just draw up. And if your deck runs out, you haven't died, as in a lot of these games, you just pick up your discard pile, shuffle it up, and you're, and you're still playing. So if you want to rinse through and really burn through a couple of houses and concentrate on one, it's perfectly valid to do so, and there's no punishment. And it, I think those are the two words that I feel playing keyboards. There's no punishment as you play. Yeah, it makes it a real casual game. Um, I think we were talking about, for me, it's a perfect game to have a Sunday afternoon, grab a couple of drinks, fresh decks even, and just sit down. And for me, even in a tournament context, I would never again go to a deck-style tournament where I have to pre-build decks. I find it too stressful. You get there, there's the whole meta argument. You feel stupid when you haven't researched or done what everyone else has. But I could totally see myself doing one of these. You show up, you open a deck, you play. It's really relaxing, as you say, even in the tournament, there wouldn't be much stress about it. You have some fun. The only context I think this doesn't work is for those people who really feel and want control. You know, if you're a heavy, deep, involved gamer, this will turn you off, I think. Um, you need to kind of live with that bit of ambiguity and just randomness. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the skill in those games where you build your own deck is in, obviously, the deck building beforehand, but it's a lot of effort. In terms of the game itself, final point, the luck versus skill balance. It's really tricky. I think I'm going to reserve judgment on that because I need to play it some more. We had a situation where someone lost, felt it was down to their deck. We swapped decks. They lost again. Now, on one or two plays, I really can't judge. Is that just random and luck or was it down to the play i'll come back to you in three four plays on that i think yeah maybe 30 or 40 plays. yeah, yeah <laughs> well in the three games we've played two of them have been really close one on on a single round or just nipping in for the other in the middle game 
Rachel played a card. In effect, I had something like 11 Ember saved up ready to build, and Rachel, in one turn, stole it all from me. <laughs> and one of the base um, decks has got very little stealing in it. It's got a little bit of capturing where you put them on the character, but very little stealing. She's obviously got the stealing deck. And just, it all went, and I was completely looking at it, and she ended up beating me by three keys to zero. So I think if you had that as your initial experience, that could be frustrating. You have to be aware of what you're getting into. It's the same as, as playing Magic or something. Else. Sometimes your deck just won't work, or sometimes you just, the other person will draw three cards in a row that go fantastic. In fact, she had it where it was a close game, and then she put a wave of poison or something like that that put two damage on every single one of my creatures. And then I happened to have two healing cards in my hand that healed one of every creature, earned one ember for every one healed, and I played both of them and ended up with, I think, 19 ember or something like that. <laughs> so it swings and roundabouts. You have to roll with it. Is it the tightest game ever? No. Am I having loads of fun with it? Yes, even just with the base decks. And, I mean, you and me, we've got plans for stupid Sundays, having a couple of beers and playing and all the rest of it. And I think we're trying to um, convert a few more people to the lighter side of gaming with Keyforge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with the right group, the right mindset, uh, I'm really enjoying it as well. Beautiful. We're going to move on to something that's... Is it equally as hot? Has it gone off? Is it not the bleeding edge anymore? Root? I just heard they're on to their second printing, something stupid like we're into the 50,000 now if, if this wow. completes, so I think we're, we're still hot. Still hot. Yeah. Okay, it's the, uh, the asymmetric conflict game set in Woodland, whereby each of the players takes on the roles of a different Woodland faction. There's four in the base game, there's two available extra with an expansion. You might be the cats who are looking to control the forest, the eagles who are looking to get back their former glory, the Woodland Alliance who are basically the Star Wars rebels, or the Vagabond who's looking to go around. And there's various roles the Vagabond can play, but are looking to sort of cadge favours of all the other factions and help them here, help them there, and eventually probably turn on one or the other. Now, I've only played one game of Root, so this is definitely not a full review from me. I was a vagabond, I was the thief. I won, but I won at a table where I think you were the only person who'd ever played before, so there was two others who were completely new to it, so very much an asterisk. There were a few rules questions here and there. You have played three times now? Four, actually, I think. Oh, check yes. you out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting because uh, I think you and my, I both have at least three four-coin games in our cupboards. Yeah? Yeah. How many times have we played them? Uh, uh, Once. Verging <laughs> <laughs> on zero to one. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so I'm really surprised this has taken off. And I think they've done an amazing job in terms of the way they've pitched the game. So anyone who's played that in a coin game recognizes, you know, that asymmetry. But because of the way they've done the art, the factions and, and that kind of cutesy feel, it's just got this mass appeal. And I've already played this three, four times. I'm yet to play any of my coin games a second time. So they've done something well there. That first game, you won. What are we doing? Play it again. Okay, now we know. So you change the meta. I don't know where that's going. But I'm definitely enjoying the rides. To me, that issue is very similar to what I'm finding with Keyforge. I've got the same question about both games. Is that the fun I had in my play of Root and that I anticipate having, is it the same fun I'm having with my three plays of Keyforge and again I anticipate having? Is it the fun of exploration or is there actually going to be substance to the gameplay itself? In the end, it probably doesn't matter. 
because in route it's going to take you a dozen plays to really explore it anyway. And if I've played a dozen plays of a 90-minute, two-hour game, I've definitely got my money's worth. It's definitely a good game. But do you have any concerns about the substance once you've pulled it all away and, and got down to the nitty-gritty and understood the game? Or do you think it will stand to repeat plays? I, I agree with you. I don't think it matters. We've got four factions in the base game. You play one and go, oh, what, what the hell am I doing? You play it again and go, oh, that was better. You maybe play it a third time. You're done with it. You're still on four plus, what is it, two in the new faction. So that's six times three games. That's more than I play any of my other games. So, And then you know, you'd have forgotten how to play the first faction. So you'll need to go back, back to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I, I don't really have that concern. Um, if it gets to a point where it gets stale, well, then I'll deal with it when I get to it. But I, I really look forward to the next dozen plays and we'll we'll take it from there. So Okay, a couple of other concerns that I really enjoyed myself. So these are concerns I'm just throwing out to sort of chat about. The difficulty to learn, was it much of an issue for you? I do have to say, especially the second game we played Lobstercon, Ricardo was a star and jumped in and taught us. His own game. His own when game. When we told him he couldn't play. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Ricardo. That's terrible. You, we, we owe you a drink or two. He said he was going for dinner, man, and he hung around for half an hour helping us. I think if it hadn't been for that, we would have struggled. I'm not sure I would have had as much fun trying to struggle through those rules if Ricardo hadn't been there. It took us, what, 30, 40 minutes of Ricardo telling us how to play? Yeah, and even through the first few rounds, there was references back to him and just double-checking and is that exactly how that works and what have you. So because everything interacts with everything else, it is, I think, a game best learned from someone who knows it very well. Now, that's true for all games, but more so than than the vast majority of other games. Uh, Also say to you, do you think that if you've got one weak player or if that's too impolite, one player doesn't quite isn't seeing the implications of what they're doing or not doing, that that can throw a game of it out? Yeah, and I guess with the rules as well, it really points to a game you might want to play with the same group repeatedly. So it's mm-hmm. uh, it really doesn't feel like a game. So you're you- all getting the same rule wrong, so you don't care. Well, just, just the <laughs> fact that if you sit down again, you don't have to go through the 30-minute rules. Yeah, I sure. don't feel like I'm going to take this to a random night at LOB, our gaming group, and just go, right, three random players, would you like to join me? I don't think I'd enjoy that. It, it'd just be too much effort for what it's worth. And then not only have to teach the rules, but you're also having to jumpstart them on the strategy to go, right, if you ignore the Vagamont, he wins. So don't. Or if he, play, he plays devilishly well. Obviously. And looks it's handsome. Not cheap on my yes, win. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very witty. Yes. I'm going to throw a little marriage to you for helping us learn our coin games. Learn Root, learn The Expanse, which has got the card play of a coin without the complexity and as much asymmetry. And I think from learning those two, we're on our way down to getting our heads around those coin games. I think you're wrong, but let's do it. Ooh. Okay, <laughs> go on. The Expanse is really light in comparison to any of the coin games. But this doesn't have the coin card play where the card comes out. That's what I was expecting because it was card-driven and people talk about coin all the time. The heart of coin is is the card play where the card comes out and different people can use it in different ways and... No? Yeah, but it's not... That's not the complexity in coin games that makes them difficult to teach. That mechanic you've just explained can be explained to anyone within a couple of minutes and makes sense really quickly. I don't even think you need to play the Expanse to get that down. It's the real asymmetry in the factions that makes those coin games hard to teach, even more so than Root. So I think it's really just the same problematic parts of Root 
just slightly more in depth for the coin games. I thought I was being really smart with my marriage of root and the expanse. You really burned that down. <laughs> that was really cold. I'm, really I'm, just, I'm just channeling Sean. We need some. <laughs> He's politer than you are. <laughs> On air. <laughs> so for both games, actually, Keyforge and Root, for me, very promising starts. The hype was worth it. I'm looking forward to playing more. Yeah, me too. Yeah, okay. It's a great start. We'll go on to very much less of Cult of the New here. Memoir 44, have you heard of it? Oh, for want of one tank, the war was lost. <laughs> Are we still pointing fingers this direction? <laughs> so we didn't just play Memoir 44, we played Memoir 44 Overlord, which is the eight-player version of Memoir 44. Now, Memoir 44 is a two-player World War II game in which you control either side, and it's card-driven. It's the command and colour system where you've got a left, centre, and right flank, and you're trying to do, you're trying to beat each other and score points, and they're objectives and what have you what we did was play the eight player version or it was operation market garden where the allies have mostly landed behind enemy lines and trying to hook back up with their tanks and they're trying to take several bridges around arnhem in the netherlands in 44 i'm pretty sure Anyway, you mean in Memoir Forty Four? Oh, no, I didn't mean that at all. But I, I left it open for you. <laughs> Three, if you take control of the left, centre, and right flank for your own army, and then you've got one Overlord, and they are the only person with access to decks of cards, and they have a hand of cards, and they will hand out cards each round, allowing you to order your troops. Now, it's very limited what they can hand out. If you don't get any cards, which happens quite often, you roll one die, and you might be able to uh, or to move one of your units. You're facing directly off against someone else, but troops can move between the different sectors. So you can hand over your troops to someone else or they can come and support you. And what you don't do on one flank might lead to a collapse that will start affecting other areas. In this one, one of the quite interesting things about the hand management was that as the Germans, we started with a very small hand of cards. And with the Allies, they started with a huge hand of cards. They're the advantage, sort of the surprise advantage, I guess. And then as we took out their units, our hand size increased and they decreased, which... It was kind of hard for me to feel what the balance was at any point of the game. I was like, oh, I don't really know what's going on. I didn't need to because I just had to do the suicide mission and try and hold that flank. You were my centre prior. You were my backbone. Which went moderately well. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because ultimately, because of the way the teams are set up, you do just end up dealing with your little problem and you have to rely on a general to kind of have the big picture. And I think it's a real strength of the game as well because it allows someone to be tasked and said, right, Ronan, sit down, this is your job, and get on with it. You still have the chat among the team, you kind of have your banter going around. We, we did hear a horror story of people playing without any speaking to each other, which, which just seems like no fun at all. No speaking, no, this is war. <laughs> this is very serious dice-driven war. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> Three hours of not talking to each other, oh. trying to be serious about memoir. Okay, anyway. It's crazy, yeah. I really liked it. It's classic con game in the sense that i wouldn't want to play that on a regular basis i got rid of my own memoir set because i was not going to play a two-player game of it but in that context i think it, it really shines um it's not something i'd want to do more than once a year but that one time i'm really enjoying i think i could do more than once a year i think i could be talked into it i, I we were talking about when we look back through our plays and i'm sure i've played memoir 44 to just two player but it must be before i logged plays and it wouldn't have been that often but my only logged ones are three games of overlord and that's it <laughs> so it shows where my preference is and i find it slightly odd that such a simple two-player game you think 
you're going to turn that into a team game. It's, there's not enough there. There's too much random in it. And it actually takes, to me, some of the random out and puts more of a pattern into what you're doing and makes it, it's not thinky, but there's just more of a pattern to what's going on and, and less frustrating, I think. Yeah, and, and with three players on each side, I also think you're averaging the, the luck a little bit. So, you know, you might have a little bit of bad luck on your left flank, but, you know, your right flank does better. So um, in a lot of ways... He didn't, though, did yeah. he? He was terrible. He's supposed to be our strong flank. In <laughs> fairness, he got given three cards all game. <laughs> and was just, I'll just sit there and get shot at. It's fine. <laughs> you mean that amazing tag we had that we never used? <laughs> the tiger the, yeah it's a museum piece don't worry about that I think knowing the scenario would have helped so having played it once I'd like to play it again there are unique scenario rules Adam was the centre of the allies and he had collapsible boats I think he could then have gone and helped either flank or, or bolstered them a little I don't know, but would that have left you too much? Like, I don't, I don't know about the tactics, but there were rules there where you could have crossed rivers where usually it's very difficult, you can only get across the bridge. All the allies who started in towns were supposed to start with sandbags, apparently that was missed. But just little things like that, and, and then knowing the card play and knowing a bit more of the pattern. I would love for us to sit down again in, in a, just a few months, it's fine, I, I don't need to wait a year or anything like that, but play the same scenario so that we have a bit more of an idea of how it's going to go. Yeah, I think that, that that would be a lot of fun. I know there's only a couple of scenarios anyway. I think there's, what, five in the box? Oh, don't ask me, no idea. I'm very much a passenger when it comes to these Overlord <laughs> games. I'm just like, yeah, I'm happy to play. What's going on? <laughs> which which is actually a point to make. Joe is amazing. He has everything. He set it up for us. He taught us. I think you really do need that person to kind of take control and just kind of, from an events perspective, get things up and running. There's a lot of effort that goes into that. So uh, I think a big thank to him for for doing that as well. And it was his 100th logged play of memoir, which was a good way of doing it. And we also sounded like complete sponging idiots here. Oh, Ricardo sat around for half an hour, <laughs> avoiding his dinner to show us how to play Root. Joe sat up and taught us how to play Overlord. <laughs> we did, with no effort was put by us into our own fun. Bring me my games, sir. Thank you. <laughs> and I would like to acknowledge your impeccable manners in not mentioning that I whiffed the final roll for us to get that final point to win and we got crushed on the next turn and we'll move on yeah comrades and all that's fine (laughs) next time next time brother uh, another older one that's been expanded, but but last year's Essen, which is practically the Stone Age at November Lobstercon, but it's Lorenzo Il Magnifico with the expansion Houses of the Renaissance, which adds to the tight euro of Lorenzo a fifth column of cards which you can draft. It's all about dice get rolled. The three colours of dice correspond to your three colour workers. It gives them a power which they can then help you draft cards or help you run the cards you've drafted or just allow you to get more servants and money and resources to help you do basically that, drafting cards and running them and scoring points in lots of various ways. So it adds a new selection of cards. It adds a fifth player. It very much changes the base game, though. But just for sort of a base level, for me, this was my... And I'm not perfect at logging. Everyone has to get that in. But my eighth logged play of the Renzo Il Magnifico. So I've got a little background in the game. You've played it a few times as well, I'm pretty sure. I think half of those are probably together. So I've played at least five or six times as well. I really like the base game. I think it's one of the tightest Euros that gives you a really interesting decision every single turn. The play length, I think, is perfect. The engine building, I think, is really interesting. So it's it's really kind of grown on me, and I think it might be in my kind of top 20 games at the moment. 
almost word for word. I'm not sure if it makes my top 20, but that's probably because you're about 87 times better at it than I am. And one day I will also take yellow buildings and try and make an engine rather than just <laughs> faffing around for six rounds and not scoring many points. So what does the expansion add as well as the fifth column, fifth player? It adds, and I know you like this bit, the bid for the families. So at the beginning, there's one family per player laid out and there, there is quite a few of them, there's a dozen or ten or something like that. Uh, you take one per player and you put them out and they all have a power you will have for the rest of that game. And you do a kind of reverse bid in that the first player dobs on there and you can overbid them and then they have to move, Cyclades style. But you're overbidding to take fewer starting resources. So the more that a particular family gets bid on, whoever wins it is going to have fewer and fewer resources. And in fact, there's different auction tracks and they get mixed around and randomised. So sometimes the power of the family requires the resources that you're giving away to start with. You'll take a while to get going. I know you love that auction bit. I think it's really clever, especially because you've got the complication where you get to see what the church penalties are. So for those who haven't played uh, various points in the game, we, we get checked how pious we are. And for those who are not pious enough, they will incur a penalty for the rest of the game. But those change every game. So the fact that you get to see what those are kind of changes the inherent value of the powers every single game. So I think it's a really, really clever way of being asymmetry in, but letting players value that just not only inherently with their power, but also in the context of the game. And that pre-draft, I think, is, is really fantastic. Yes, and it goes along with another pre-draft as well because it's highly recommended if you're using the families, you should use leaders. Now, leaders was the advanced version of the base game, I'm going to be honest. We did it once, I think, with the base game and never did it again for reasons we'll get to. But in this one, you get handed a, a hand of four leader cards and they will have a prerequisite on there that you have to have at some point during the game, just enough money, enough wood, enough faith, enough military power, whatever it may be. And once you've done it, you don't have to pay it, you just put it up down and that leader's then going to give you power. And you're obviously trying to marry up some sort of engine between your leaders and the family you've bid upon. Now, you said in the base game that you're looking to build an engine, but that engine takes a while to get going and running. This kickstart in two different ways cheer engine really soups it up and you're, you're going from like a bicycle race to a, a dragster race in here. Yeah, and, and it changes the nature of the engine building. I don't know about you, but most times I've tried that yellow building strategy, for example. You get to run it a couple of times in the game. In, in this one, it just kind of really lets you build something and then kind of rinse it for the game. Now, I'm still undecided if I like that or not, but undoubtedly it's different than the base game. So for those who've played the base game and kind of played it out, I think this is a really good, fresh way of bringing things in. I'm just not sure it's to everyone's taste. The fact that the base game only came with exactly enough cards to put out for the three eras, meaning you'll see the same cards again and again, I think it meant that eventually you will need a refreshment exactly agreeing with you again the fact that you're souping up i'm really not, i'm probably less convinced than you are on that because it changes the game so much that it, there are other games in which i can score 150 points i'm quite happy to scramble around for 65 in lorenzo that's what i go to the game for but the one thing that i am intrigued to try by itself which i haven't done yet is just having that extra column in and having those extra cards now there's lots of them and they can be off any of the four other columns. They could be green, blue, yellow, or purple. And that little addition, that slight randomness, that slight easing of tightness, that might just be enough for me. 
Yeah, and I could see if they were to do another release uh, or, or mini expansion, I'd really like to see another alternative set of base buildings that you could swap in the game. And there's no reason that couldn't work with with the current expansion, but just a way where you could play the base game with a bit of new variety without having to bring in every single bit of the expansion. Yeah. So, Love Lorenzo, the expansion... Mm, there are circumstances under which I'd want to add it in. I th- definitely love the family thing. Less sure about the leaders. I think I need to play the whole setup in different ways to find the perfect mix for what's going to keep it fresh but still tight enough for me. Yep. Agreed, agreed. Beautiful. Yup. One word answers. That's what we podcast for. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're definitely taking the lead on this one. So most of the, these 21 games we've played either together or we both played them in some way. This one is one of the ones we haven't and they, they will crop up here and there. This is Ceylon, an Essen 2018 tea growing in Sri Lanka Euro game that looks very pretty has got an action system in which you choose an action, but the second action you don't choose, everyone else around the table gets to take from the three cards in your hand. You're looking to take tea from plantations, plant your plantations at different elevations. I haven't played it. That's as much as I can tell you about it, but I will surely quiz Puria once he starts giving us his opinions. Yeah, I think starting at the top, as you said, it's it's very nice to look at. It's got a bit of character because you use some of the tiles to build height, representing kind of your tea plantation and the various heights of your uh, growing regions. It has a real nice aesthetic feel. The actions themselves are actually really easy to teach. So the game is very quick and easy to learn, but also to teach. So that's a real positive. And on your turn, all your actions, you know, it's a choice about which way you put the card and then you take either one or both actions. So the turns are very immediate and once you've decided and committed to an action, people typically know exactly what they want to do. So it plays very quickly. So those are really, really positive things around it. The reception to it was a bit mixed. And I think that's probably down to two potential concerns. I think one concern that was raised was around the distribution of cards. It can feel a bit frustrating when the cards you have in your... So you have a hand of three cards to possibly choose from. When those don't really line up to what you want to do, that can feel frustrating and there isn't really any way to mitigate it. Now, the game has technology cards, which you can use to take both actions of a card, not just one, which you would typically do, but there's no way to use that on other players' turns. So if someone plays down a card and you can't follow, you spend a lot of actions just doing the generic dropout actions of either taking coins or moving. Now, if that happens to you again and again, I could definitely see that being frustrating. At the same time, a lot of good play is specifically playing cards so that others can't do anything. So it seems a bit odd because good play means people, other people aren't doing what they want, which means they're probably not having as much fun. I don't know how that's going to play out. We'll have to probably give it another go. The one other concern I think I have with it is that it's very, very tight in terms of action. So just to give you a feel of, you know, you grow plantations, you take tea from them, those go into your warehouse, and then you fulfill contracts with that. But the contracts you're fulfilling require three tea, and your warehouse only stores five, and with an upgrade six. So you're constantly doing these very small actions where you take some tea and 
pretty much fills your warehouse, which means you pretty much have to ship, but you can only ship three. So these the actions kind of block each other after a while. That, I think, could be quite frustrating to people. So that tightness might actually be its downfall. Now, I've only played this once. I think that's all with a bit of a caveat to say that that might just be my first impressions. I'd love to play it a couple of more times to get a feel for that. The fact that everyone didn't love it straight off is probably something to look at. But everything else in terms of teaching, playing, the look of it, that was all really positive. It sounded like there were a few small level frustrations that piled on top of each other maybe. I watched the Man vs. Meeple video on it and they were saying that there's only a limited number of building your plantation actions. And if people cleverly sort of rinse them... And, and keep them out of your hand and you just don't happen to draw them, you can kind of be excluded from winning because I believe every time you take tea from a plantation, you can take it from other people's, but they get points for you doing that. So in order to score points, you have to give other people points. And they were suggesting also, they said they liked it, but they generally say they like games. They were suggesting that it can be a frustrating experience. Now, is there enough agency or depth in there to like some games are frustrating but you think i'll get through this frustration i'll think my way around it and then i'll do something clever and then i'll get going again it's part of the game but if it's very simple sometimes there's not the game space to think your way around the frustration you just get in a traffic jam that's what i'm picking up second hand yeah and, and in some ways it might not actually matter if that's the reality or not so in our game we had plenty of plantations that was an issue it was the ability to harvest and ship together that was stopping people. So we could probably take that criticism verbatim to our game and others would probably say, well, this card wasn't in the deck. And I think that's probably just the nature of the distribution in the deck. If you get the cards and powers you don't need early, then you're not going to get them later when you do need them. So it's really difficult to tell if that's good play or just randomness in terms of the deck. Either way, the fact that people are feeling frustrated is not a great thing and it's always difficult these days especially with so many games to go you know what if you play it twice you might have fun because people turn around and go well i want to have fun the first time around so that might turn people off actually that's because we're all spoiled we've got too many games that's yeah. why oh yes but a thousand <laughs> two hundred <laughs> games ronan who can say no <laughs> right salon was mentioned in our top 10 most anticipated and i said i hadn't been grabbed the second-hand reports that I said I've got afterwards still not grabbed. I'm going to let you play it twice more, and then your job is to talk me into playing it if it's worth it. Done. Good. Right. That is us done for our first little segment. We'll be back in a couple of seconds with five more games for you. So another Essen 2018 game, which we've both played this time, is The Estates, which I did mention on my most anticipated. It's a reworking of Now Heimat. Was that good pronunciation? It was rubbish. Neue Heimat. Neue Heimat. Yes. Is that good? Put a bit of oomph in it. Neue Heimat. Anyway, <laughs> we could be here for 10 minutes to try and teach me how to speak German. It's reworked by Capstone Games. In The Estates, it is a mean, mean auction game in which there are six companies which no one controls at the beginning of the game. There are building blocks linked by colour to the six companies. There are roofs. There are three rows of four spaces in which these building blocks are going to build buildings, but those spaces can be extended or reduced by particular permits. There's a mayor who's going to double the scoring of a row, which can be a good thing or a bad thing because at the end of the game, rows that aren't complete are going to be negative points. If they are complete, they're going to be positive points. They're only going to score points for whoever owns the topmost block 
in a building and buildings are capped off by roofs and every single thing I've just mentioned gets put up one at a time for auction in a closed economy where everyone starts with a certain amount of money and they are paying each other. So whoever puts it up for auction either pays the person who made the biggest bid as much as they bid or takes that amount of money off them and gives the wooden piece to that person. How many plays, Puri? I've only got the one in. Five? Five of this? Yeah. Or with... No, 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 five of this. We uh, kept finding ourselves with too many players and half an hour, so we grabbed it again and again. It was a great little hit for LobsterCon. I had played the original, I think, years back, and to be honest, I couldn't remember much from that, except I remembered liking it, and I remembered how mean it was. It <laughs> genuinely is like a knife fight in a planning office. <laughs> Have we been at many of those? <laughs> Have you not gone to your local council, sir? <laughs> you piece of, no, but no, no, I just haven't. <laughs> it's obvious how you could be mean in certain ways, right? In that you, you can move the permits up and down so a per- previously finished row can be extended and you can make things difficult for people. What I didn't get before I played was how much the a smart piece of play or a particular bid can shift the whole game state because... You shift the scoring for everything in that row. So it can be an 120-point overall swing by by winning or losing of one auction, and it's identifying which of those auctions are absolutely crucial. Now, that's made very, very difficult because quite often, who wins the piece dictates exactly how that piece is going to be used, if that makes any sense. There's not, there's not just one use for each piece. It's not in a lot of auction games. You're going. Here's a thing. It's worth twenty points. Who's willing to pay the most money for this twenty points thing? I found in the estates. Here's a thing. <laughs> it's worth four points to you. It will steal six points of that person, but give you two to you. For you, it will make things absolutely terrible. But you're defending yourself in a different area. But for you, you've got absolutely no negatives. But you're not interested this time. And every piece, once you've established a bit of a pattern to the game, has got different values to everyone else, which surely is the heart of a good auction game. And I really love the fact that it's really about second-guessing what people want and then, in essence, getting them to pay you for something that you wanted to happen anyway. (laughs) That's so satisfying. And it's just because everything just changes, as you say, and even alliances change you know you might start out oh round to round (laughs) and it's so much fun i've rarely won a game with like minus five points and had so much fun at it one of the concerns i have to say (laughs) is that people who have played a couple of times will look at the board and then just go i'm not taking any companies and each turn just put one check away and have five points at the end of the game and win (laughs) that's a bit i wish that there was a proper winner and that that wasn't possible because I think there's so much group thing in the game. Is that just a dynamic of the people who get around? Because with every group I played, we ended up getting to a different equilibrium in terms of what was happening. So I know that concern is there and that negativity can put people off, but I've enjoyed it too much for that to matter at the moment. And I don't think I can play this again and again and again repeatedly in quick succession like we did recently. You just played it five times on the weekend. <laughs> I know, but I mean, that's exactly the point. It's going to go in the cupboard okay. and it has to now sit there for a while because I don't want to bring it out again because I'm really afraid that it's going to go stale and I don't want that because I think the reprint did a fantastic job. It's a great game. The art is fantastic. It's affordable. Production values are good. 
They did a top job, so I'm really, really impressed with them. I have one other slight concern. Yes. It's a quick game. 45 minutes an hour, you can realise you've lost with a quarter of the game to go. You can look at it and go, if I fix that problem, it scores another person more points. If I don't fix it, I can't win anyway, so I'm stuck here. Yeah, I, I do see what you're saying. The fact that the game is usually half an hour means unless something's gone terribly wrong, you should only really be in that position for 10 minutes. And then most of the time people are like, right, let's play again. I know what I'm doing. Really? Half an hour though? Really? Yeah. 30 minutes, 40 minutes. No problem. I, I only played once, but it definitely wasn't half an hour long. I think with experienced players who've played that, you can knock that game It gets out. worse because then you're staring at each other going, <laughs> you, you, what, 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 what? I disagree. I think it's really hard not to recommend. There's very few things that stop me doing so. There's a slight niggle, and that's only because I've experienced the original. In the original, you had zeros in the roof tiles. Oh, yeah. Which meant if you pulled one of those, you would skip a turn. And it was really designed to stop people from grabbing the ruse too early. I'm still not sure it really is needed for the game. But I kind of wish they would have put it in as a variant. It would have taken them two minutes just to add a couple of zeros and just said, right, here's a variant from the old game. If you like it, play with it. But otherwise, I can't fault them on the production, the game. And I think I'm really happy to see it back. I'm going to throw out there, you could just treat the sixes as zeros if you wanted to. Maybe? No? But there's only two of them. I think there was like oh. three or four zeros in the original game. So You want a skip-a-go mechanic put it back into it. <laughs> you don't know what you want. Okay. <laughs> If you're going to go mean, just go the whole way. There's no half ass about it. I'm going to say, you want everyone to realise the implications of each piece that's put up for auction, for sure, but that's cool. I definitely have to caveat Puria's universal recommendation. You must have a thick skin to play this. You simply... It is. You are going to get turned around on it's going to be treacherous you're going to look at a block and go i don't need that and then someone will do something with it which will absolutely screw you up entirely it's not obvious so i think you need to be a thick-skinned gamer who enjoys take that and then it's fantastic care bears (laughs) need not apply there's no question about that you wouldn't last long around here anyway (laughs) right we're going to move on to Great Western Trail, but specifically the quite elusive to get, apparently, Rails to the North expansion, which was available at Essen and Puria picked up. Great Western Trail is the Alexander Fister deck builder in which you're going along. I, I heard Tom Vassell describe it as a big rondel. I'm not sure I, I fully agree with that, but you're, you're moving along a track which resets and you come back to the beginning again. Every time you reset, what you're doing is selling hands of cattle and you're looking to deck build because you can get extra more valued cattle in and you want different colours when you get to the end, which will allow you to sell for more money and get to more lucrative uh, destinations to score more points and give you lots of opportunities. You can build your own buildings on the track to, well, cost other people money when they're going through them or to give yourself various actions as you stop at them we're going to start again with the base game quickly puria i have got six logged plays of great western trail and i've given it a six rating i've just seen that the people put it in the dice tower people's choice top 20 of all time i expect the shellacking to start now i'm not alone in this because i know rachel likes it too it might be one of my favorite games 
So I have a very different opinion on it. I'm a little concerned, and I've put it on the shelf because I don't want to overplay it, but my first dozen games, I loved every single game. Now, I think I tend to like most of the Fista releases, but this one really, I think, is top of the list at the moment for me. What, what am I missing? When I'm playing it, what is the fun or the enjoyment that I'm not getting? I don't know. It's just... Well, you uh, played it with me, so you've seen me. You know, I expect you to study my every move. No, but you're just miserable these days. What can I say? <laughs> Tired. It's not the same thing. <laughs> the fact that you have three strategies that all work genuinely as ways to win in the game. So you can go cow heavy, you can go buildings heavy, and you can go trains heavy. The turns are quick in terms of what you're doing because you're, you know, rondelle or not, you are constrained to choosing one of the next three spaces in terms of your movement. Obviously, that increases a little later, but there's only so much you can pick from. It really does point to executing strategy, building it up piece by piece. The choices I find interesting and up to now, barring our discussion for the expansion, there's been enough for me to explore to enjoy every single one of those games. What do you not like about it? That I found the decision space to be exactly the same every time I played it. And I mean, I went heavy trains. It didn't feel that much different to doing a lot of deck building, which I felt was really powerful. I didn't ever really go heavy buildings because I never saw it work. So, I don't know, have you ever won going heavy buildings? Buildings, I think, are relative to the rest in the sense that you get some early buildings out, especially the ones that give you money that are well-placed. The people, can, yeah, when the people yeah. go through you, yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely a kickstart. Now, I think you're right, it's probably not as pure a strategy as the other two, but it can definitely give you a leg up. Now, there is some variety in terms of the buildings you can use in the game. You can flip to A and B sides. So I think that changes the relative value of the strategies but yes I, I see your point it's maybe slightly more difficult than the very straightforward you know i'm going to build a big cow deck or you know i'm going to have a very lean deck and i'm going to rinse it as quickly as i can so there's some merit in that i think it's going to be an interesting discussion how you feel about the expansion changing all that has your opinion changed the new board's now essential because it gives a bit of variety in the delivery mechanism. I like, uh, do I like this? A uh, Great Western Trail is okay and I'll play it. So when I say something that got stale, it, that's why I wasn't, I'm not excited to play it. I don't want to get it out. I'm not gagging to play it. To me, the delivery system got stale and just going and delivering your cat and doing the same thing every time. I didn't know how to fix that because I'm in no way a board game designer possibly one of the reasons why I shouldn't be talking about board games but the, the board were giving you an option so that when you deliver you can then start building your own network out and going in different directions which will give you a little bit of a bonus definitely freshened it up yeah and I think I had probably gotten to the point with my dozen plays where I was hesitant to play it again and this has done exactly what I wanted from expansion which is to say it's reset my expectations around the three strategies and it's making me have to renew and think about what I want to do and what works and in that context it's done it really well so yeah it's a good expansion in that it adds something that improves the base game refreshes it gives you a little bit extra to think about without changing the game totally on board with that now 
I need four more expansions <laughs> that give me a bit more variety in all the other things as well to really refresh the game for me. So will I play Great Western Trail again? I would rather, much rather play it with the expansion. Will I be playing that half a dozen times? No. I think no one's going to change their opinion on it. If you like Great Western Trail, you're going to buy the expansion. I think you'll enjoy the variety and the change of strategy. If you didn't really like it in the first place, there's no reason this would ever change your opinion. So I think we really are only talking to those people who enjoyed Great Western Trail. And for them, I think there's enough new stuff here to explore. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, another game that only you played and another Euro. We'll kind of find out what kind of game players we are here. Trade on the Tigress, which is the Jeff Engelstein Ryan Sturm started as a sort of a joke where they were going to design a game called Trading in the Mediterranean as a rebuff to Tom's complaints about Euro themes all being very similar to each other. They have made it and it's come out from Tasty Minstrel and Game Brewer. And I have to say, I'm very glad that you've played it and picked it up because it wasn't cheap and the theme was a bit of a stale joke to me. So I got to hand over to you and say, persuade me with the gameplay. It was really interesting when we played it to see a bit of a mixed reception. And I think it was also interesting to see that there was actually two or three different reasons why, uh, for those who had a negative reaction, they kind of responded that way. One of them, I think, was just the context. So we played... How big is the room we play in at LobsterCon? Oh, that's holding 80 gamers probably at once. Which made for a very noisy environment. And being a trading game, especially where we play with five or six players, which you can, you need to be able to talk to everyone on the table. So Dean, who was sitting next to me, his frustration, I think, was from the fact that he couldn't actually even managed to talk to the rest of the table so he would really just trade with either myself or his other neighbor and that's not any way going to make a a positive impression i think that really makes this a, a very bad game for any kind of convention it needs to be a group of individuals in a quiet room at home gaming like any decent euro best played in a library in silence with like memoir 44 overlord (laughs) (laughs) even the space i think was interesting because this is a classic game where you probably want a nice round table where you know have a bit of a discussion across the table with them having said that for those people who bought into it and were having fun they seem to all really enjoy it so it was a bit of a marmite game where those who disliked it really disliked it those who enjoyed it were having a great time so i think it just needs to find its audience in terms of the theme yeah okay i'm sure you could have themed this in in a half dozen other ways space theme fantasy whatever you're going to do neither of those something different what name me go trading game that is in mediterranean we, i literally just said i'm not a game designer <laughs> <laughs> not fantasy, not sci-fi, not the Mediterranean or the Fertile Crescent. Come on, something better. Backseat designing. What are you? Yeah, you've seen me in a car, <laughs> which you drive very poorly. So hence the... That's mean. I just got my to bring that up. That's really personal. <laughs> I hate you. We talk about the theme, but you haven't told us what you think about the game. You said I like, like it. No, reaction. I yeah. genuinely like it. My only two small concerns. I don't think round five versus round four is adding to the game. I kind of wish it would have ended a turn earlier sometimes because as you build up your engine, you start doing the similar things in terms of strategy. So by the time you get to round four and five, you really are pursuing the same things again. So it becomes a bit redundant to have that last round. My only other small concern is 
that, as we were alluding to, it needs that buy-in. If one or two players aren't enjoying themselves and aren't trading, you get this dynamic where you're just kind of trading with one or two people who have what you need and you're trading back and forth. So if it finds the right group, I think it's a very good game and I had lots of fun with it. You need to be conscious of the fact that a lot of people might not enjoy it. So if you have a group of friends who enjoy it, I think it'll come out again and again, but it's not a great game to just randomly introduce to people. And if you are, be mindful of the context you're playing in. And is it is it the interaction? Because you're saying you're enjoying it a lot. Is it the interaction with different players? Are you doing something clever? Is it the economy system? What is it? Just for those who, who haven't seen this, you're trading commodities back and forth, but the commodities have two parts. The top part is just the commodity. So you have your fish or your barley or whatever it may be. And the bottom can be one of several things, some of which are positive. So it might give you a boost on a track. So on your religion, you might go up on one of two religions. You might change your government. So you might get some democracy or they can also be negative. So there are various disasters that can affect people. The top bit, you may never lie about when you're trading. So if I offer you two fish, I have to give you two fish. The points for being on the tracks incentivize you to go as far down a track as you can, but not too far. So if you're democratic, that's great. If you're overly democratic, that gets you uh, less points again. So you're constantly on this cusp at the end of the game where you're trying to stay within these bounds, which means when you're trading, you're not just concerned with trading the commodities, which would really just be pit on steroids, but you're also trying to get the bottom you want in terms of the effects of pushing you on these tracks. So the trading is not just, I'll give you two fish. It's, I've got democracy here. Anyone want a democratic fish versus, you know, I'm... Um, <laughs> I'm looking for a dictatorship on, on Bali or whatever it might be. That, I think, makes the trading more interesting, combined with the fact that as you give away your card, so if I give you a disaster, I now know you have a disaster, which means I can't afford to trade with you or anyone else who's going to get cards off you. You're subtly tracking cards around the table because you've given that poison chalice to someone, so you're trying to make sure it doesn't come back to you. And that can actually be quite fun as well because you get these sheepish looks between people and when you've had a deal between them, like, wait a minute, he just got something negative. So you're you're really eyeing up if it's worth trading with that person again. And I think that's really, really great. In the right context, with the right people, but I know that's a bit of a cliche. I think it, it can be a lot of fun. It's not for everyone. You've talked me into that. I mean, just give it a go. Done. You're a good salesman. Okay. The best game ever designed next? Our favourites. I don't even know why we're talking about it. There is, there's nothing that can be said or undone about this magnificent top 10 game. So uh. I just thought I'd tell the story of my game because I thought it might be quite funny. It's Dominant Species, which we always play at Lobstercon, usually with Puria, but you were busy doing... Something. Something else at a different table. Anyway, Chad Jensen, GMT, worker placement. There's a, a two-system area majority thing going on, an attacky game, slightly asymmetric. My 24th play of it, Puria, which is about 300 too few, in my opinion. <laughs> but I started as Amphibians now, for those of you who know the game. Amphibians are always an early target because one of the major systems in the game for controlling is it's not just presence of having cubes of your own species in there, it's adaptation to the food stuff. And amphibians start more adapted than others. So they're strong in water. They have three opposed to everyone else is strong in it. If something else, but only two of value off two. So you're going to be a target. And you don't really want to be a target for the whole game in Dominant Species because it's very easy to get beaten up. But I thought I'd try something different. You can imagine how this went. <laughs> I thought I'd go with it. And just, all right, if I'm going to be an early target anyway, I'll just be an early target. And I did 
everything I could to score points in the first two rounds. And I just rocketed it out to like a 30 point lead. I was like, right, fine. If you're going to beat me up. In my head, I was then looking to sort of, I'd get caught up and I'd get beaten up a bit. And then some of maybe the worst cards would come out from the deck and they'd be played. And then I'd get a chance to come back again towards the end of Speciate and move. As long as I kept like watering places around or adapted to something else. And so I was able to come back on the board. This is what I was thinking. And we got three rounds from the end. And I thought, right, now my sort of second wave can come out. So I'd been in the lead. I was still in the lead at this point three rounds from the end and I start, I speciated with most of my cubes back on the board to give me a chance then to start migrating and grabbing places and, and also wonderlusting putting new tiles out and moving my species in so I could build a little chain where I definitely it's sort of a standard, standard strategy so I, I could have power in that little chain of the area being an idiot a total idiot not realising Blight was available oh, ouch. all <laughs> one of the, uh, the hexes had five water around it which was basically my whole center of power and i just hadn't thought about it and then i was second in turn order but edward we know he's really good at games he was first in turn order he was the insect he went straight in there and i was like oh now the fact it was going to disrupt him if he blighted that tile i was thinking maybe he wouldn't oh he would <laughs> he did <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you how bad this got <laughs> Going into the penultimate round, I was still joint first with Ed. Going into the last round, I had three cubes on the board. <laughs> and I had three left in reserve. <laughs> Zero endgame scoring. Uh, I was starting 35. Yeah, uh, my endgame scoring was about seven points and I ended up fifth. <laughs> the only person behind me was the debutant. <laughs> He'd never played before. Everyone else had played at least half a dozen times. Some of us a lot more than that. It was... Uh... Anyway, Chad, if you're listening, we want an expansion with six new factions. He's made a whole new game. What? Dominant Species Marine. When? Well, there's a whole new game coming from GMT, a whole different version. Oh my God, how have I not heard of this? I don't know. <laughs> how have you not? I thought... Oh, head and I chain. said, hold on. I sent a photo on our Facebook message thing of Dumb Species Marine. Oh, I've completely forgotten. Yes. Oh, idiot. Oh, I'm I've, happy again. Christmas I've been in contact early. with Gene from GMT already. Don't you worry. <laughs> I've opened up channels. <laughs> Gene, I love you. Look how many videos I've done. <laughs> anyway, Dumb Species, despite the fact that I was horrifically picked on, mostly because Puria wasn't there to share the heat, because that's our role in Dumb Species is to get picked, picked on. on yeah best game ever moving on then so from chad jensen a really good game designer to chris marling (laughs) pioneer days it's chris marling and matthew dunstan it's basically an oregon trail themed again from taste of mixture games actually that's two and three it's a dice drafter in which dice get rolled beginning around you draft them you can use them to take money to take actions or to get um like specialists personalities to help you out with things you played it this time around puria i've played it a few times before Thoughts on Pioneer Days? Interesting you mentioned Oregon Trail because I really, really wish this had just been Oregon Trail and it had become that mass market game rather than that rubbish they, they put out last time. Yeah. Because I think this is exactly the audience that this will shine in is a mass market intro game. Barring one or two very, very small things around card interactions, the game is very easy to teach. In terms of the units of play... 
on your turn, you simply choose a die. You have one of three things you can do with it, which really constrains choice down in a, in a positive way. And it all really works well together. Now, personally, I like my games a little heavier. We just talked about Dominant Species. So I think a couple of games of this is, is perfectly fine for me. But that's not to distract annoyingly from the fact that I think Chris has done a very good job here with his uh, co-designer. I think I'm legally obligated to point out that Matthew probably designed 96% of it. Okay. That makes so much sense. So much. I presume. It's the only thing. Yeah, it's it's funny. And I agree. I would probably play it more than you're saying there. Like you play it a couple times and you're done. I'm not done with it because I think there's variety to it. I think you draft different things every time. The fact the game punishes you, so one die goes left undrafted and that will lead to a catastrophe or the black die lead to all the catastrophes going up. And you can prepare yourself in certain ways for certain catastrophes. So you might deliberately leave a certain colour behind to put the others under pressure. I think actually that sort of minor take that has got a huge audience. You look at Azul and the fact it's just taken off and people are kind of used to it in mass market games. So I think you're right. This has got all, it's got really lovely components. It's got all the components to be, all the component parts to be a a big hit. And it seems to be going under the radar. And I I just don't understand. The Dice Tower love it. Again, it's been in their top 100, at least two of the lists. One of them really high up. There was kind of like a weird soft launch of it Essen, when they didn't have the dice and stuff. Yeah. And it just hasn't been pushed because I just don't understand why this hasn't been a really big hit and why it hasn't got more buzz and why more people aren't talking about it. I don't really see it around in shops and stuff like that. I hate to say it, but I think maybe the publisher... Uh, nothing against the publisher, as you said. I think the game has been published and produced very well, but they're just not the kind of company where you get a lot of buzz out of it a lot of their games kind of get the soft launch. So if it wasn't for the fact that I would know Chris, there's no way I would have gone through Essen and picked that up. Yeah, it would have flown under the radar. Yeah. and that They do make good games. From our point of view, from this side, they are not a great company to deal with. In that they just, They'll talk to you about the same thing three times in an email. And you were like, yeah, we talked about this. And then the two months later, they'll go, be silent. And then they'll email back about it again. And you'll be like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. Thanks a lot. We we did mention that, you know, this, this, this. And, against, and they just don't seem to be very organized in dealing with the gaming media. So that, I think, leaks through into their PR and marketing because they just don't see their games getting pushed. Mm-hmm. Which is a real shame because I think one of the things I, I didn't mention, which I really like in this, is when you're drafting the die, if you're first, you get the choice of the dice, which is great. But if you're last, as you mentioned, you get the choice of the die to leave, which triggers the catastrophe. So it kind of means that either end of the turn order, you have an interesting choice to make. And I really, really like that. Hopefully, it will get a bit more buzz. People will discover it despite the kind of low release it's had. Uh, And I think it would be well-deserved if it does. Yeah, I can only agree with you. Go out and play Pioneer Days, people. It's a really nice 45 minute to an hour dice drafting game just deserves more attention right that's half time we're going to have a tiny little break and we'll be back shortly back to the hot 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 hotness puria Teotihuacan, the Euro giant sort of rondly thing game that came out Essen from NSKN. It was hot, it was tot, it was all sold out in English. There was hundreds of French copies left in Hall 4, which 
it's language independent. I don't know why people weren't buying those. But anyway, that's another point for another day. You've played it. I haven't. You need to persuade me. Hit me. I think I might have a bit of battle because I know you don't like the publisher particularly. What? Well, hold Let's on. Us down a few times. There's been, no, no. There's been publisher news this week. Mm. Which news, I thought news away. Keeping out the loop. Board and Dice and NSKN have merged into a new company called Board and Dice. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a takeover to me. But yeah, Board and Dice, who we do love. Who yeah, are, yeah, yeah. We um there was the prototype we played in Essen. Sierra West. Yes. That we talked which, about that. Which, I talked about yeah. And yeah. uh Escape Tales of the Awakening and Pocket Mars and Super Hot and really friendly, finished their games, really good rule books. The other half, the NSK no, NSK are really friendly, by the way, but the other half they they weren't doing finishing, doing decent rule books, having really good marketing. This looks like a merger to me that really works well for this publisher. So going forward, and they've put out, uh, Born Dice have already put out a schedule all the way through till 2020 of the games they're bringing out. There's a Simone Tashini game coming again. and uh, Yeah, good. Fantastic, positive move. I'm really more hopeful for NSKN, but this game, Teotihuacan. <laughs> Or as I will simply call it, City of Gods, because I'm not pronouncing that. I don't know why it keeps being compared to Tolkien, because I don't really feel like the experience is is relatable. In terms of the overall game, I did enjoy it. I think a few points from me just of initial play. So for those who haven't seen the board, you have various action spaces in essence that that are in a rondelle the base ones are printed on the board so in conjunction with various technology tiles that kind of gives you a particular puzzle to solve if you will as you go around the board collecting resources and build up this main central pyramid i think one of the cruxes of the game is that every particular combination of the rondelle with the technologies is going to bring you a new set of strategies because the base game doesn't change i think there really is a dominant strategy there. I'm not going to mention it. It's probably just my opinion, but I think there is a way to solve that. It really is supposed to just be a learning game. The second and third time we played it, when we mixed up the boards, I enjoyed it much better because I felt like, right, this is completely brand new. It's very unlikely I've seen this combination before. And I really like that puzzle of trying to figure out how best to solve this particular setup. The two small caveats I had in the end was there's a central mechanic where you're actually building up physically the pyramid with kind of square domino type pieces that have uh, four symbols on in each corner. And you get a certain amount of points depending on the level you build them on, but you also get points for matching the symbols. That bit of it felt a bit redundant because really what we ended up doing is, you know, there's probably a optimal move. And all you're really doing is in letting one person solve that is delaying the game. So we kept just all jumping in and going, right, let's have a look. What's the best placement? Okay, here you get three and or you get four there or whatever. So that one or two points didn't feel like it made a huge difference in the game, but it really slowed the game down. So I really wish, like we've often complained about, that someone had kind of grabbed that game and just polished off one or two bits around that. So I also think in terms of the rule book from what I saw, it was fine, but I think there could have been a bit more done in terms of ordering that rule book and making things a little easier to understand. But initial impressions, positive. I liked it. That's kind of standard in SKN, so I don't mean to be up. 
<laughs> but the things you're saying are just like, yeah, it does sound familiar. It's got the most buzz off a, a medium to heavyweight Euro coming out of this, and I would suggest it's going up against the lights of, and I, I, I think you've played most of these and all of them, Blackout Hong Kong, Magna Storm, Captains of the Gulf, Underwater Cities, Australia. Does it punch in that category? Is it a heavyweight? Yeah, in terms of quality, not weight. It's 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 a tough call because I think, you know, just to reiterate for people, we've only played these a couple of times and I think we're, we're still a bit, uh, a few steps removed from being able to do full reviews on these. I liked it. I don't think I liked it as much as some of the others that you've listed on, on there. Long term, I think this has real scope for replayability. So I think I do need to give it due credit for that. I did enjoy my games of it but they were not the kind of perfect polished experiences I would want from from a top-tier game coming out of Essen. So in terms of going forward, is it that if the modular nature of it continues to keep that puzzle fresh every time, that's going to be the key to its longevity? For me personally, absolutely. And I've already kind of made my mind about this. I don't want to grab this and play it again and again. I think for me... I can see that I, I probably want to play it maybe six, seven, eight times, which is already, you know, as we always talk about, a, a huge return from a game. So I'm going to leave it on my shelf. I'm going to try and get it out maybe twice a year. Beautiful. Okay. I will make you play it with me over the course of December at some point, I'm sure. The next one is another SN2018 release. This one's from Matago. It's Treasure Island, a competitive deduction game, and bluffing, in which one player is Long John Silver and they hide treasure on a map, obviously without showing anyone, they mark it on their own hidden map behind the screen, and everyone else is trying to get to that treasure, following the clues that Long John Silver is forced to give them by card play over the course of a certain number of turns. If you delay too long and don't find it quickly enough, then Long John Silver escapes wherever you've locked them up, and they can start running towards the treasure. And if they get there before anyone else does a search in the area of the treasure, then Long John Silver will win, or the person who has moved on the board and searched in the correct area will win. You actually draw all over the board. You draw to show where you've moved. You've drawn to show where you've searched. And Long John Silver will draw to point out where they've been forced to give clues. It might be direction clues, which will say, right, it's definitely to the west of here. It's definitely to the north of there. This person's closest. This person might be furthest away. Long John Silver can bluff a maximum of twice over the course of the eight or nine clues that they hand out over the course of the game the players can spend actions to find out if they've bluffed they can spend actions to do remote searches they can spend actions to move very quickly each player only gets one or two actions on their turn it's very quick moving a lot of the fun is in the physical appeal of it of drawing and using like a compass of both varieties to draw circles or do directions and noting your own clues behind your own screen I don't think you got to play it, did you? No, and I hear the playtime is anywhere from a minute to half an hour. Is that right? Uh, a minute to three <laughs> hours. Did you miss that story? <laughs> uh, yeah, we played well. Okay. I, I logged it because, of course, you're going to log it. But we did one game, and this is perfectly possible, in which we got set up. Long John Silver hit the treasure. The first player went, I moved three miles, drew it. I searched here, and Long John Silver went, yeah, you found it. <laughs> can happen but also on the opposite end of the scale some people at lobster con played it hyper serious like 
miniatures competition series with the movement of rulers and the placement and the holding down and the exact measurements and took three hours to oh, play it. I haven't played the game, but it already looked like that wasn't what the intention was, right? It's, that is not the yeah. intention. No. We did. So I played it at Lobster Con. I'm more than just that one-off quick game. I played it with gamers there. Some other people apparently played it as a full co-op, where they just told each other everything they knew, and they were just trying to beat Long John Silver. That's, you're pirates. You're out for yourself. Play the game that's supposed to be played. Anyway, I also subsequently played it at home with the family, and... We had a lot of fun, really a lot, a lot of fun. Now, it was cool, it was stupid. If someone moved something a centimetre or two, it didn't matter. Uh, did you go exactly six miles? I don't care if you went exactly six miles. Were you close to the treasure? Then I was a bit mean, actually, to my youngest daughter. She searched and it was like, there was a hut with a pier on it and I'd specifically hidden it on the end of the pier and she drew and it caught the hut. And I was like, no, you didn't find it. So she sort of moved on a bit. But she knew it was in that area. She'd worked out that much. And I thought, I'm still feeling bad about it. I should have just said, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, close enough. You can see it at the end of the pier, right? Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, but it's definitely one that's got a wow factor off. Everyone's drawing on the board. It wipes off really nicely while you're done, by the way. Got these rulers and people are leaning over and working things out themselves and getting the clues when you're long drawn silver. It's got that perfect balance of, I don't want to give any of these clues away as long drawn silver because they give away too much. But then the players look at the clues and go, well, that, that just doesn't, that doesn't help me at all. What are you talking about? And they have to do a bit of deduction. There's obviously luck in there. If you manage to do your search in exactly the right spot we need to do there's different size circles you can search for you can make decisions along that line it's a perfect holiday game where you get it out you have a laugh people have a guess you give each other a bit of abuse you go a lot and everyone's laughing that's i'm sure the spirit it was intended for and if when played in that spirit it was really really fun and sticking in my collection i played it four times now and it's going to stick around it's going to come out at christmas I'm really looking forward to trying it. One question I do have, just yes. on the components, because I think it was the last game you were playing, is it the really big compass you used to make the giant circle? Yes. There seemed to be a bit of, like, just mechanical hurdles in terms of making sure a circle actually represented anything that, close to a circle. Okay. I had my concerns viewing that, because I wasn't drawing the circles. <laughs> then we got home and I had to do it, and I thought it was going to go terribly, and it went perfectly fine. So I can assure you those were entirely human problems okay. you were witnessing. <laughs> human <laughs> error. Got it. Okay. I mean, you use the compass at school to draw circles, right? Yeah. Right? You yeah, have to hold yeah. the central thing, and then you have to spin the other one round. It's... Okay. It wasn't that hard, mate. User okay. error. Got it. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Looking forward to trying it. Sounds good. Yeah, and... I mean, even there, you're talking about it, that uh, she, she drew it and it was a bit wonky and it was ovals and stuff like that. And it was, was the cross within the area that you drew? Yes. Then let's move on. Let's not spend 10 minutes drawing a perfect circle. And everyone was happy with that and laughing and it was, it was funny. So play the game for fun. Very good. Treasure Island. Okay. Play the game for fun. Never have more inappropriate words been used. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like an Eklund game is due. <laughs> From one extreme to the other, Pax Porphyriana, 
the card drafter from Phil Eklund, which is very heavy and is themed around the Mexican government and there are various topples in the game and you're going to draft cards and pay for them and have a maybe a mini economy going on, but other people might pick on you and steal your economy. And then you're going to have strength in four different areas and you have to have strength in the right area for the right topple, but you can flip cards over to... I'd, I'd, why am I trying to explain this game? I've played it three times and really do feel like there's something wrong with me cognitively. <laughs> You've played it a lot more. Now, you played this weekend, which we can talk about, because I think you played an all-experienced players game. Is that right? We did, yes. But like you, I've taken the radical step of putting a Adam or a Martin into my box so I can actually have someone teach me repeatedly <laughs> every time I take it out. Because for the life of me... I cannot actually get the game 100% right <laughs> from memory. It's just impossible. And I don't know what it is about that game. Well, every... well, hold on. In fairness, uh, you're probably getting taught a different version every time you play because it's still got living rules, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Someone was talking about packs. I think it was Renaissance. It could have been Premier. Uh, on BGG, I was reading my geek list, and someone came, and this guy's played it like dozens of times. It was Premier. And someone came in and went, oh, have you seen the new Living Rule 1.2.13? And the guy was like, oh, no, I haven't seen that. When did that come up? Well, it just came up on Tuesday. The game's been out for like three years, and they're still writing the rule book. Because you get fear of, you know, your first edition game being replaced by second edition games, but you, you have a fear with Eklund games of like spending two weeks without being on the forum and going, oh, I don't know how to play this game anymore. <laughs> it's all changed. It's now a roller move. <laughs> so we will come back to sort of my my fumbling attempts at playing. How was the game with the experienced players? This is surely the optimal way to enjoy a Phil Eklund game. It is actually. And I think, I don't know if it's nostalgia or if it's simply the fact that I think Pax Poe might be the best of the games but i do genuinely we laugh about it but i did love that experience and i do have fun playing it every time it's something i don't always get from his other games i think i haven't yet really bonded with the whole greenland and neanderthal oh, series no, yeah, yeah. yeah i played i played greenland a few times and neanderthal i think only once oh, that was just too random rubbish no yeah the promising things i think because Pimir, i kind of liked there's been a kickstarter with um is it cole doing yeah cole was actually tweeting today about um how he's chosen the art and graphical assets and all and colorblind testing he's got a big long tweet chain it's quite interesting if you go and look it up yeah and i'm anyway. i'm really excited about that because i think in some ways phil's games a bit like what we said earlier about the publisher, I think they could really, really do with someone actually taking them off Phil's hands, polishing, finishing, not touching the rules anymore, (laughs) (laughs) and delivering us really, really interesting games based on his really, really intricate and interesting scenarios he's, he's come up with. In terms of his original games that he's published, they are a little rough around the edges. And I think there's a certain charm to them, but there is also a bit of frustration around that. I genuinely don't think you and me could grab Rachel and a random person and play that game without someone like Martin or Adam being there. Mate, I, w- I would be a handbrake on that attempt, <laughs> not in any way. I've just I've no idea. Did I see news about there being a merger with him and another company at Essen? I didn't hear that. So you enjoyed this play of it? I did, yes. I think Pax Poe is still but my why favorite. Why did you enjoy 
Because finding the fun, you said there's more fun in this than in other Eklund games. Finding the fun is the trick with his games. Like, you, and that's what most people, I think, have one play and go, I don't, I don't get it, where's the fun? It's probably from the interaction and the complexity. That deck of cards with the armies, with the different enterprises you have, the, the partners and a whole bunch of things. There is so much variety in that deck that it is genuinely impossible for any single game to feel like the other game. It always feels like a unique experience. Now, you know, there are so many cards that you end up having all the rules questions and everything else, but there's a real charm to that. And I think it's not for everyone. And it's not a case that I would endorse every single one of his games. But for any seasoned gamer, I think there's a certain charm there. It's intriguing. Put it on your bucket list. <laughs> wow, wow, okay. So, every, every, it's, it's like going around Mecca or one of these things, right? <laughs> Everyone should play a Phil Eklund game at least once. <laughs> and if you're going to make it one of his games, I would definitely start with this. Okay, I have to wonder... So we played this teaching game, you, me, and Adam. It was a teaching game for me as my third game. Whether it's fun for them, whether it's like they're constantly answering the rules, does it help? Is that part of their enjoyment? Because it's it, these games have to be evangelized. They have they, you have to evangelize rather. You must. Someone must come to you with a passion and teach you. Otherwise, you cannot learn them. So, do they get some enjoyment? You think from that? Because. During that game, I was getting more of an idea how to play. And I was understanding how the industries were working. And I started to get my income. And then I was seeing the links between the different areas of Mexico and the US and how certain things work, certain things. And then I was getting the fact that we had power in the four different areas for the topples. And then Adam, there was a topple. He did something. He messed with me. He made me flip my leader. And then there was another topple and he won. You know, from the first topple and he flipped my leader and I did stuff, I was like... I was really set up to do really well there. Oh, and what? Had, what? Did, Can he possibly have fun teaching me and then destroying me? I think your religious analogy was a really good one because this seems to be... The this, cult of Eklund. Yeah, exactly. And once you're in that cult, sure. it's, it, you know, you are willing to stand in front of people's door going, have you played, you know, <laughs> Pax for Have friends. you thought what Phil Eklund would do today? <laughs> have you have lost you? a loved one and thought <laughs> Phil would just move on? have you considered flying in the high frontier um (laughs) this seems to be just in its own right i think there's a a certain accomplishment from learning a phil eklund game so maybe it's a bit of pride to be able to teach one i genuinely think someone like you know as as we say just because they're the ones who are always teaching us adam and martin get hopefully a bit of pleasure from doing that because otherwise we've made them suffer many many times and i, yeah, I do apologize have. so, <laughs> so uh, pax transhumanity is coming by theme alone that's terrifying but we got in contact with them before Essen, chatting to them about pax emancipation and because i was vaguely making some some headway i was like sure we'll have a look at pax emancipation why not so uh we we paid cost and and shipping and stuff but as it came across a review copy well great cool thanks it turned up and i read the rule book a couple of times now firstly there's loads of personal footnotes in there which expose more of Philek and psyche than i wanted to know <laughs> it, possibly our paradigms are slightly different on, on a lot of things but anyway, the rules themselves, I was like, mm, I think I'm getting this. Okay. And then I thought, I know, Adam's got a copy. He playtested it and helped something to do with the rules. And so he, I said, I'll, I'll keep hold of it till he's born. I'll read it a couple times myself, try and get my head around it, and then Adam will teach me. And then I, that's such a kickstart into learning this, then that'll be grand. And then I, I saw Adam at Eastbourne and I said, have you got 
Pax Emancipation. He went, yeah. Can you teach me? No. <laughs> How many times have you read the rule book? Four times. <laughs> Didn't you play test it? Yeah. Haven't you played it already? Mm, I've played a version of it. <laughs> the dude who playtested it after reading the rule book four times doesn't know how to play. How much more unapproachable can these games get? So like Pax Transhumanity, I presume, is going to be written actually in an alien language. <laughs> Which is going to have to ambassadors come down and probe the information directly into our organs. I don't, what's, what's going on? We have a solution for this. Cole, if you're listening, please take every single one of Phil's games that's decent and fun and re-release it under your label. <laughs> I will kickstart every single one of those. With a rule book. Okay. <laughs> From a slightly off-beat beaten track to maybe more off the beaten track, Costa Juana, I'm going to call it. I'm going to go for the Portuguese pronunciation. I don't know, maybe it's not. 2014 from Yuri Zuravyov. Now, the reason I say that is because I didn't realise he's the designer of Viceroy. He's a Russian designer. He's got a couple of designs under, so it might be a name worth looking out for. This one is a bit odd, Puria. We both played this. There's a circle of islands, cards, and they get a certain number of gems on them. And you're looking to, at the end of each round, have the majority of meeples on an island, and then you get to claim a gem and throw it in your hut, and, and it's secret scoring. There are two colour cards in the middle of the table. One of them's yellow, one side blue, the other. The other one's purple, one side green, the other. And they'll start with two colours face up. Each player is going to play one card from their hand around the table in front of themselves or another person face up. Then we'll go around the table and everyone will play one card in front of themselves or another person face down. Then everyone's going to play one meeple on a card that's in front of themselves or another person, effectively doubling down on that card. Then the shaman, who's going to be the person who scored the fewest points the round before, gets to flip one of the two colour cards in the middle of the table, meaning you're going to have a combination of two colours, and then all the cards get flipped face up, and only the colours that are now face up are going to activate the cards. And they're going to allow you to put meeples onto islands or take them off or move meeples round. Then we go around each island, whoever's got the majority of meeples takes a gem, and then whoever scored the fewest this turn becomes the shaman, and we do the same thing again, we do it five times. Sorry, I stopped listening. I made a random choice on turn one. What, what's happened? Yes, and turn two, did you make a really thought out choice? or? <laughs> yes, really thought out. Yeah. And exactly what I expected to happen happened in a very funny way. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> you know what my problem with this game is? Go on. And it's a direct comparison to the States. When you take a tile in the States and you put it up for auction, you can see every single person going, ah, oh, sh- wait. How does that impact me this way? And you can see it in people's eyes. They're registering going, oh, she doesn't want that because of this. And he doesn't want because of this. So the decision space is informed and funny and interesting. Here, you have so much randomness that even when you are doing something funny and negative, then you're not completely sure what's going to happen. There's just too little agency for that to be fun. Because it can be any combination of colors, although only two are activate, in effect... Any combination of colours almost is possible. There's one that's not each round. So any colour card you put down may or may not activate and you don't know and only one person gets to decide it. And that decision only gets made five times a game. And we played a game with more... Well, was there more than five players? I think there was five players, but I, I never got to be Shaman anyway. So I never made a real decision in the whole 45 minutes. And in terms of results, it could be anything from, oh, I've, I've taken over half the board or... 
I got nothing this round. Which happened and I came second without really making feeling like I made a decision. I can see why people think that, you know, the results are funny and they can be. But because it lacks the associated agency, it's just not fun for me. And I can't endorse that game. And I think I'm struggling to see individuals who will find fun in it. And I'm sure there are some. I just I just don't know who they are. We know some. Yes, he's a special <laughs> boy, though. And uh... I didn't hate it because I wasn't engaged enough to hate it. I had, I had almost zero emotional reaction because I just sat there and some things happened and it took 40 minutes and then I came second and went, okay. Yeah, but apathy is even worse than hatred. At least hatred gives you a story and some telling afterwards. Apathy, you're like, what? what do, when, I will not remember that game in... Six months' time. No, we'll go back and go, what, Costa Runners, what? What's that? I don't... I'm okay never to play this one again. It seemed to get a, a minor sort of cult following at this LobsterCon. I hope that we can find them a private room for next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go on to something. Uh, I don't know what you think about this, but we've mentioned it a couple of times before on the podcast, so we are going to be quick. But um, Sean talked about Chronicles of Crime in one of our Essen Roundup, and I'd only played it once. I've played it a lot more now. You've played it, so we're going to very briefly go over it quickly. It's from Lucky Duck and David Cicero. It's got some VR using your mobile phone and a pair of glasses. You don't need the pair of glasses, but it can be VR. It's a modular system in which you solve crimes around London. You're going against the clock. You're looking around the place. You're meeting people. You're using your phone to ask those people about other people or things that have been found or asking experts about clues you've found. And then everything's not laid out for you. You have to do a little bit of deduction and you're trying to solve a few simple questions at the end of the game, not by luck, but by actually it asks you and you have to scan the card that you think is the answer. And then it'll ask you how you got to that conclusion and why via scanning these cards again. So you have to use a mobile device. And Puria, I've already said that my first impressions were strong. I'll talk about how I've played it more in a sec, but you've also played it. Yeah, it's um, rare I have a game where supermarket checkout experience is, is a real asset. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever work on a supermarket checkout? No, but... Yeah. I thought you were too posh for that. I did. <laughs> I've played with one. I thought the game actually did a few things I really, really liked. And one of them was with the clever use of the app where, unlike Detective, where I felt a bit of frustration in terms of the whole database and everything else. Here, I think the app added that little bit of information. So you scan something, you get the information, the dialogue you want. I really, really liked, without spoiling it, the kind of real-time aspect of saying, ooh, here's suddenly a notification. One of your suspects has left this location. That kind of brought a bit of something dynamic to to the puzzle, which I think is often been lacking. I do have a small reservation that's really more to do with the player count. I'm not sure you can play this with three or four. There's one device you're using, and I can't see the difference between playing with four and two except frustration. My girlfriend doesn't particularly play board games, but we play like exit games a lot. We take them to the pub, sit down, have a drink, play through one. And I could see this filling a, a similar role for us where we have an evening. Instead of watching a movie, we grab this, go through a scenario. And as a two-player game, I think it worked pretty well. Okay. You mentioned Detective there, which I think is going to be... We're going to fully review it, Sean and I. Well, if we ever get through it all. But taking from that, I think that also would work better with a lower player count. I think almost all these Detective deduction games work better with a lower player count. 
what's your opinion on these games in general? Sherlock Holmes, Detective, this, any other mystery ones you want to bring in? Now, this is not just particular to this one. I think it can apply to other games as well. The thing that generally lets me down is the end. So you're trying to solve the crime. You go to the scoring, if you will. And even here, it asks you to scan the item or the person or you know whatever barcode you think is relevant for the answer. That can be a bit tricky because you know you know the answer and you might be right, but you're still saying, well, do they mean, do they want me to scan the person who did it or the item? And if they want the item, do they want this one? So that ambiguity can be a bit frustrating. I didn't find this one ambiguous, not compared to others in its genre. No, okay, yeah. And as I said, I, I think it does it very well. But that scoring bit, I think, is the weakest part of these it's games. Where each game struggles, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, and I, and I really like the experience. So we've, Jupuri and I played, but as part of quite a large group, the very first episode of Detective, or Scenario only, and whatever the gameplay experience was like, and I think we had too many players, we had four or five playing at different times, because you can only use one database for that, but the end game questioning really deflated the group, didn't it? And Sherlock, I think, is the same. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's maybe just inherent to the nature of these games that they really are, in a lot of ways, more puzzle. And I think the problems that publishers have in terms of making sure that scoring bit works is maybe just a symptom of trying to gamify what is, in essence, a one- or two-person puzzle. That's not to detract from the game. I actually had a really good time playing the two scenarios I've played. I'll be really looking forward to playing the rest. I think using the components and, and reusing them in clever ways and being able to download extra scenarios through through the app, I think is all really, really good. So I think the publisher's done a great job. Those small reservations, I think, probably are more to do with the nature of the game than it is with this particular instance. But overall, I think if people like that style of game, this is definitely one to recommend. Yeah, so for me, just to build on thoughts I've given previously, I've now played it solo. I've played it with gamers, with Puria and our friends. And I've also played it with my family, I think it worked well in all groups, possibly less well with the heavy gamers, but that's only to be anticipated. My younger daughter is 12. She will play games with us with her arm twisted, but only one or two, and then wants to go and do something else. When we finished playing Chronicles of Crime, she said, Dad, I'm going to download the app onto my phone. I think I'm going to play this game by myself. I tried not to overreact, because you know if you overreact, you make it a thing that a 12-year-old's not going to want to do it. I was just like, oh, yeah, cool. That sounds like it could be really fun. Okay, just let me know. I'll leave it on one of the lower shelves then. I'd obviously then walked out and ran around the garden, whooping and whooping. Because obviously she'll be playing Dominant Species tomorrow, because it's the natural step, right? (laughs) But it's been a hit with all different types of gamers. So just to add on our piling on of praise over the last month for Chronicles of Crime, I've really enjoyed it. And again, looking forward to more scenarios. So that's it. We've got the final part left. We're going to do six relatively, checks his notes quickly, relatively lighter games, but with a bit of an Eldritch Horror story in the middle. And we'll see you in a sec. So we've got a few quicker games to crack through here and then we'll let you get on your way. And the very first one is The Boldest from Sophia Wagner, the designer of Noria and Stronghold Games. We did do a treasure hunt on this. It was the game in which you choose sets of adventurers and you put them in three groups behind the screen and the king is doing an expedition. And for each of the three expeditions in a day, whoever's got the strongest group of adventurers is going to be able to go into the forest and claim weapons and items and artifacts 
and defeat monsters and how well you do on that is going to score you points at the end of the game so it's a simultaneous reveal if you win the chance to go in the forest then those particular members of your group you lose your leader and the others go for a rest they're not available to you on the next round and you're trying to recruit more adventurers to make your deck a little bit better to give you special powers we anticipated sean and i that it would be quite a light drafting game i was quite charmed by the idea sean i think had more reservations he wasn't sure about the look of it either Puri and i have played one game three player i think maybe that wasn't the best player count we could have been a bit better with a one or two more players but anyway nevertheless <laughs> saying that the review will be shoddy let's crack on Puri, the boldest the bidding part of it I actually thought was quite interesting. The decision about how much you play this round, how much of your cards you hold for next round. As you say, having more players might have made that a bit more interesting. But I think the bit I have a reservation about is the rest of the game. I found taking the cards not to be overly interesting. I think in terms of scoring, that was fine. It was all just fine. There's nothing there to recommend that game over any other. And just to channel our inner Sean for a moment, the artwork didn't capture me either, I think. I don't know if it's just maybe too much of the same shade of colour, but everything was a bit dull and green and and kind of muted. From my point of view, if someone said, do you want to play this? I'd be like, yep, sure. Play it a few more times to change my opinion, maybe. But I think long term is just not one for me. If I replace the word fine with too light, would that work for you? I'm not sure it would, because I can be okay with a fine light game, but a light game still needs to be captivating and full of interesting choices. Well, but that's for you as a gamer. Maybe, and maybe I'm just not the target audience. But the fact that it's come out from a hobby games company, to me, suggests that it didn't really suit where it's landed. In terms of publisher... Tell me, tell me. I mean, it's it's stronghold, but I think it's also I think it's also Spielweise as well, where the expectations I think are going to be different to what they've got here. This is really no heavier than a mass market game without too many negative connotations. Yeah, and do you think the packaging feeds into that in terms of the big box experience you're kind of selling? Yeah. Even from reading the rule book, I just thought there'd be a little bit more that the choices in going in the forest they'd be a little bit tougher or there'd be a little more, just a little bit, a little bit more thought behind it. Really, it was a case of I mean, when we played, you could just guess and chuck in a couple of cards, and if neither of the other two would put that class down, then you were getting stuff for free. And if you got that early on and you weren't paying much to get it, it gave you a boost. There was only five rounds which meant that an early start really kicked you off. If you've got a couple of items that other people didn't have, you'd be the only person who can attack a certain monster, which meant you'd go fighter and the others would just be like, yeah, you know, there's no point going fighter. I can't get the best monster. And it shaped it in a way that was a bit odd. I I think for the weight, I kind of wished that that there were more rounds, but each round was quicker so that you're making more instant decisions because you're making very light decisions over a bit of a prolonged period of time. Like it took probably an hour to play for five rounds when we were making four decisions around. I actually really agree with you in terms of the unit of game needs to be smaller and more frequent. I think they would have done the game more service if they had packaged and sold it as a light filler game targeted at 30-40 minutes. Yeah, I agree with you. And I have to mention the issues with the components. 
the player screens, the player order tokens, which is one of the nice mechanisms in it, actually, the way your player order changes. You break ties and then you drop to the back of the queue. They were ridiculously flimsy. They're not good components, so... Which maybe, again, is symptomatic. If you would have made a lighter game, I would have forgiven it that. If you would have made a much heavier game with that price tag, I would have forgiven it. But it seems to fall straight in the middle. They almost didn't fulfill their function, though, because the screens didn't stand up because they were so light. And the player tokens, you could... Honestly, they're so thin, you could almost pick them up. You couldn't pick them up to move them. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's a step too far. So, the boldest didn't make the best impression, but I think hasn't been targeted correctly and much more for a family or casual audience with maybe brighter artwork and it could have found its niche so i think it's going to end up missing any sort of a target because it's, it's just been yeah it's it's neither fish nor fowl yes here's another one with a slightly different level of component quality war chest from aeg designed by trevor benjamin and david thompson it's a two-player abstract battling game across a board in which players are getting units out and moving them and using the unique powers of each unit in order to battle each other for control for nodes across a well it's just an abstract board basically a grid i've only played it once i know that you've played it more often than that prior so again do you want to lead us off on war chest i played this at essen for the first time when they were demoing it in the booth sat down chap came over taught us the game in what three four minutes walked off we both kind of looked at each other going is that it we played we really enjoyed it played again mixing up and swapping teams and it really was i think for me personally a really nice balance between the simple rule set but you know the various units you have each having their own ability with the combination of units you can have each army then feeling different which means every time you sit down with someone even if you to pick the same army and play someone else it feels fresh and different so i really really liked it and i think for anyone you know in the vein of the duke or any of those games and for me personally i think i might prefer this over many of those games because it has a really good balance between the complexity and strategy versus the simple rule set why would you have to bring the duke into it i love the duke i was already to say what a good game this was and then you had to go and point out to the winner in class (laughs) it's just a tough comparison (laughs) <laughs> I don't think you need to It's no the Duke. <laughs> no, it doesn't need to be, though. I think... No, no, um, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One isn't going to replace the other. I think they've done... They're a quite re- similar. Fine. But I'm happy to have both in my collection. I really, really look forward to them releasing, in good time, there's no rush, another set of expansion tiles that clearly they're thinking about because that box is either half empty or waiting for that expansion. <laughs> Was it future-proof? I think it's future-proof, yeah, which is <laughs> yeah. fine. I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. If they release the same number of tiles again, you know, even in the same box to say, here's the second set of armies, you can buy it standalone or you can buy it and now you can mix both together, I'd be really happy. I have zero reservations. I think the quality of the components is really good. They feel great as that the bag builder, so you pop them into your bag. The bags are great quality. The box, the flip box, everything is perfectly sized. In terms of strategy, it's really good. So I think rare to say for me, I think they've done a fantastic job here. From afar, I wasn't attracted by those components or the look or the name or the theme. And I was perfectly willing to pass this by. Even when it got good bars, I was like, eh, whatever. We sat down one morning to play it and I was immediately won over. 
by the components, but also by the gameplay. There's a couple of things in there that particularly hook me. Now, in comparison to the Duke with the Duke, you've got a tile and on its face, you can see what moves it can make on its next turn. But then that tile will flip after its next turn and it has a different set of moves on the other side, which can be very different. And unless you've memorized them, you have to keep picking up and thinking, and then you'd have to know what was on the other side of all the other pieces on the board to fully plan what was going on and what the options were open to you. Now, that's one of the delights. The fact is you're never going to do that if you're any sort of a sane person. So you make a move slightly into the unknown, which means you can't AP too much. What Warchester's done is every move is open you can see what everything that the other player can do with their pieces are and what you can do what you don't know is what they've drawn or about to draw from the bag and that's what i really like as well because you're sitting there going oh i really hope they don't draw for their cavalry i really hope they don't have they used them all have i killed enough of them and it does it in a different way to make the two games although be very similar the decision space is different enough i think for both to echo your point around that anxiety, I think that's one of the best bits of the game. You know, having to make genuine kind of risk calculations to go, how likely is he to move that unit? I can do something really great over here, but I'm going to have to spend another turn exposing and hoping that he won't draw that tile. That's, I think, both fun and, as you say, a really clever way of turning what would have been in a perfect information game and introducing just enough hidden randomness to make it spicy. Agree. The other thing I love is that you want to toughen up your units, right? And it, when I first started playing, I was like, well, obviously I'm just going to put the discs on these units and make them tougher to kill so they can go around and they're not going to get taken out immediately. Then, of course, you're losing those discs from out of your bag, so you lose activations. So you've got a really tough unit that's only going to activate once every time yeah. you cycle through your whole bag. Another great decision space where you're there going, oh, what do I do? No. <laughs> Simple but tough choices. Really, really good. And I think anyone who is looking for a two-player game, I highly recommend to, to have a look at War Chest. I, and I too. Now, we're going to go quick Eldritch Horror Story, and then we'll move on for the last few games. As you've heard before, we always play a game of Eldritch Horror on the Saturday night at every Lobster Con. It's traditional to be quite drunk when you're playing this, to which end we drunk some Prosecco and some Bailey's coffees and some gin and tonics and some other things. And it was rather lovely. But fair play to Joe, as mentioned earlier, Memoir 44 Joe. He didn't drink and still played with us and didn't completely lose his mind or his temper. So he's a very patient man. Now in this one we played six player. I was the photographer and we played against the Dark Pharaoh older one now there are various older ones or scenarios in which bring in the sideboards into to Eldritch Horror the Dark Fair I think is my favourite the Egypt board is my favourite for various reasons it's very central it links up to both to the east to the centre of Africa and out to the west also when you're on there it's very easy to move between the different spaces on there because there are these local paths that are cheap to move around so unlike Antarctica it doesn't pull you completely out to one side so if you've got a room or an issue going on somewhere else or gates that it, once you go to Antarctica and get that board you're really out of the rest of the globe in my opinion anyway Dark Pharaoh you still feel like you can deal with things on the globe and deal with what's on the Egypt board um, there's the other world board the dreams one which all feels a bit trippy to me i need to think probably best not to play it after drinking that much alcohol i might have bad dreams the other thing with the dark pharaoh what you get is very early on you get two blue mythos cards which are rumors which set the danger early which means that you're dealing with the board early on 
and constantly the actions are drawing you back in to the bent pyramid in the middle of the of the pharaoh's board so you have to go and deal with these rumors but you're getting pulled in all the time and there's a push pull in what you can do i really like that as well i think it's a very thematic setup i think the mysteries are thematic uh, so i'm just saying that that is definitely one of my favorite expansions and i would really recommend that possibly above all the others in this particular setup it was really close there was a brutal rumor early it was a disease one that if we didn't go and deal with it with i think six clues it was everyone had everything impaired and lost allies and lost items and basically were absolutely rubbish so we had to deal with it obviously it distracted us from the tasks at hand we got all the way to the last mystery doom ticked down to zero the dark pharaoh awakened we were close to doing the last mystery we had to put six clues again on there we had three on there and we had to finish that off and then go to the bent pyramid and then do particular dark pharaoh encounters in order to deal with him and win the game the problem we had was though that one more turn of a mythos going round. There were too many gates on the board. Would have killed us off completely. So we were left with this six players, put three clues on the mystery. Then after, obviously, the mythos phase is when the mystery is solved. Then we'd have to put three things back on the Dark Pharaoh. We decided to fudge it a bit and just say, right, if the first three players in turn order can get three clues down, we'll do a pretendy win if the other three can completely finalise their encounters with the Dark Pharaoh, and then we'll turn over Mythos card, and we will have lost, really, we know, but we set up this sort of cinematic ending, because we were drunk and we thought it would be funny, and the first four players, beyond belief, rolling successes on one dice, Chris Marlin played, he was pulling things out of his, wherever he was pulling them out of, and doing it, and he won, and then Joe won, and then Phil the Sheep did his, and then Rachel did hers, and it got to me, and I had seven rolls after re-rolls and spending things to get one, five, or a six, and I didn't do it. <laughs> and then full-on went, and he did do it. So I was the only one to mess up. It was like Overlord all over again. I didn't pass my roll. We didn't get our rubbish. Not true, but cinematic ending of the game, and we just all lost and went to bed at three in the morning really upset. So it is you. You are you are the problem of, of the cause of all these problems. It pretty much, yeah. <laughs> pretty much me. But I mean, we got a really fun six-player game done. It was under four hours while we were all drunk and titting around and doing stupid voices and mocking each other and all the rest of it. And it's just great. And Eldritch Horror is great. Anyway, on to three very different things. Team Up from Helvetique is a co-op 3D puzzle which we pulled out over lunch one day in the sunroom, Puria, sitting in the sunshine, eating and playing this cart puzzle, in which there is a bag of blocks, and they come in three different colours and different shapes, and you draw a card, and the card tells you which block you have to add onto a pallet. The pallet can be stacked up to a maximum of five levels high, and you're trying to fit them all in perfectly with no overlap, with no block having the same shape side touch the same shape side of the same shape block and the blocks come in different orientations you have got to be a little bit careful with that because some of them have to be the flat side up some of them the small side up some of them long side up and the cards will tell you a particular color or a particular shape of block to add to this stack and you take it in turns going around trying to add them on and be careful and avoid each other and putting the very tall ones in places that aren't going to go above five and you score points for all the levels you completely fill in and you lose points for every block you got left over or if you turn a card over and you can't do it that also becomes a negative point and it was a sun-drenched cooperative experience solo experience oh <laughs> why do you hate people i don't hate people i just if i play games with people i want to actually play games with them i think my two small cons- don't get me wrong this is a five minute game and 
it's perfectly fine. I like the production. The wood pieces are nice to play with. People can drop in and out because there is actually no real reason to have any particular number of players. I'm a little worried that that game is the same puzzle again and again. I know the order can change, but convince me that that game has more than a couple of plays in it. Our best score was 10 out of 25. Yeah, you just need more convincing. Just because we're rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but we got we did five and then we did ten out of twenty-five. So that suggests we were at least progressing. It's definitely got more than two games in it. Yeah, I'm sure it does. And it does have a puzzle that's potentially interesting to solve. Play it a couple of times or pull it out randomly when you've got five minutes and it's fine. But maybe just not my cup of tea. But for what it is, I think it's perfectly fine. You, see, I'm worried that you always think about playing two-hour-long games with gamers. I'm thinking of Boxing Day, relatives of different ages around, people think you only ever play four-hour-long Cthulhu-themed games, and they say, go on, get one, of the, get one of your games out then with your 81-year-old great-uncle and your nine-year-old nephew, and you say, oh, well, okay, no, it's I, ten minutes. I see what you mean, yeah. You could definitely have a family visit, Everyone's in the living room. You leave this out. Random three people sit down and play it together. And the next people play it down. But you can't convince me that the same three people are going to play it more than two or three times. As you say, first time they may be rubbish, 10 points, then they'll play it again. But then they're going to go play something else or just go back to the barbecue or, or whatever. And for that, I can see it being useful. It has its niche, if you will. This is a shared space and shared time and connection and chatting and a little bit of Oh, uh, yeah, you got, oh, you got that, yeah. Oh, I got this one, oh, yeah. Or oh, you can't put that one there. Oh, yeah, I can't put that one there. But a little bit of, you know, being humans near each other and just doing the same thing as each other and that sort of light pleasure. But we could be doing other light pleasure, so... Um... Your, your version of light pleasure is us learning fire in the lake. Yeah. <laughs> there are plenty of light... You know, even that wooden appeal you can have in other games, right? Be it the climbers or a whole bunch of other games. The but... climbers? We're talking about playing this at a family... Do not complain. The climbers will be punching each other. Fine. I abstain from my opinion if I'm too... You're not allowed an opinion on this game. You're being too harsh. You're judging it too hard. It is a family game. I'd happily use it in the context of someone who's not really a gamer, but wants to share the time and space with you for one of your games, as they call them. You go, well, cool. Let's get this out and, and spend some time and, and have a chat. And f- for that, it's a nice production. It looks nice. It's got aesthetic appeal. It's got the toy factor of building blocks i think it does a good job each person's wood to themselves what i'm not unpicking that at any point and i hope that therapist appointment's going well okay rebel Knox from a porter it's a trick taker with shifting teams and some some kind of social deduction allegedly that came out s in 2018 and puria played it yes it's just to say up front a great looking game. The art is, for anyone who's played Capital Lux, immediately very similar DNA. It is very appealing. In terms of gameplay, I think I'm a little undecided on this. And as we've said, some of these games we haven't played that many times. I've only played this once and I'm going to hold judgment a little bit. My main concern around it is games sometimes can feel random on the first play, but then later turn out to just not be very transparent in terms of how to do well and you play again and you go ah okay actually i can do this to play well here i haven't really played enough to make that distinction because it felt random people were winning without actually doing anything 
because of the changing teams. How do, how do the teams change? What's that? Because it's a trick taker, right? But the whole unique aspect is there's some kind of shift in teams and you're trying to work out who's on your team. Is that right? Yeah. So just to explain very briefly, you have a hand of cards. You will play the cards out in standard trick taking. There's a, a relationship between the three colors where one color then becomes the trump if another color is leading. But the cards also have particular powers on them. So you never f- play out your full hand and you will always carry cards over to the next round. One of the powers is to draw and swap cards with other individuals. There are three cards in the game that designate you a rebel. So if you are picking and swapping cards with someone who is a rebel, there is a chance that you might pick the rebel card. Now, those cards are never played as part of tricks. They simply live in that hand. And if you're a rebel player, you will carry them over into the next round. And if you remain so until the end of the game. So... By choosing a player you suspect of being a rebel, you can actually change teams. Now, there's some, you know, randomness as to that happening, but, you know, you can play the odds a little bit. As teams change, you're also changing the size of the team. And depending on the size of the team, you need a different amount of points. So it may be that as a group with three, you don't have enough points to win. But as you lose a rebel player and you become a team of two, you might now at the victory stage, have enough points to win. And sometimes you might luck into one of those groups and suddenly win without actually having been involved in any of that process because someone randomly picked something out of your card, you switch teams, and as this new team, you win. That sounds terrible. It does, yes. And if there is... Convince me otherwise. I can't yet. And I think if there is genuine agency in that and it's a question of odds and you have control over that then I think there might be something interesting. But as it stands, it feels too random for that. And unless the next couple of games convince me otherwise, I think there's too much randomness to be a controlled fun game in there. This, for me, I wasn't convinced by the concept. You're not saying it to me. I'm going to leave it to yourself, Adam, and whoever else to play it a few times. If you tell me that a pattern emerges, then I'll delve in, but currently very much staying back and being wary of Rebel Knox. I think I agree with you. I'm willing to give it one or two more plays, but at the moment it's not looking promising. You go be my guinea pig. I'm fine with that. <laughs> okay. We're going to finish off as our 21st game. So well done if you've lasted all the way through. It's another one that we've talked about a lot. It's dice fishing, where you choose and roll dice attempting to hit a target. And the fewer dice you choose, the whoever's chosen the fewest in a turn gets the first go to try and hit the target. Obviously, it's more difficult with fewer dice. Uh, you've got D10s, you've got D20s, you've got D6s. You might be getting a certain number. You might be getting a certain number that are the same as each other or different or all odds or all evens. And you'll score a certain number of fishing hooks for the fish that you managed to capture and the most hooks at the end of the game is going to win we talked about it around uk games expo it was a filler that went over really well with everyone we played it with i think we ended up selling an extra half a dozen copies or so by convincing people to play it since then i have seen some negative reviews for it i think mostly from the other side of the pond but people just saying it takes too long which i don't understand or I really don't know what they were looking at or what they were playing at, but I've been seeing it getting some negative buzz. So I just thought it would be interesting, given that there's been a sort of a mini backlash back against it to get Puri's views on dice fishing. I don't understand the length of time because we played the game at two in the morning and it still only took us five minutes, 10 tops. For what it is, I think for me, it feels very much like Perudo. You 
grab the game, everyone grabs the dice, off you go, you roll, it's funny, you go through the deck very quickly, you score up, although, yeah, okay, you have a marginal winner, and then you're done, you put it away. I still had lots of fun with it. Everyone at Lobstergon who tried it had fun, but it really is just that five, ten minute filler, and if you're treating it as anything else, then I think that's that's probably not the audience for it. Maybe they're playing three hour long games of it in silence. Maybe. Yes, with no fun or anything. <laughs> Don't communicate. Uh, good, you are right about this game. It is silly, 10 minutes of fun and a bit of abuse and a bit of you jammy so-and-so, and that's what it's for. Just to say, I can see why someone might not have fun with this if you have a couple of people sit down and you're not in the spirit of it. I think it could be dry, and, and you need to bring a bit of spirit to it. If you're expecting more from it, and don't come bringing a bit of that entertainment, then you're probably not going to find that joy. Don't hate the game, hate the player. That is it for games. Join us again in a few seconds while we're doing our very exciting outro. Thank you, everyone, for joining us in this recap show. Hope you enjoyed Per and I chatting about a few games there. In terms of going forward, the next voices you hear will be Sean and I doing our first six reviews. Then we've got some plans for over the holidays. We're going to try and get six more reviews in before Christmas, at least. And then we're going to do, I think, if Sean would agree to it, a recap show of our 2018 10x10, how it's gone. Spoiler, not that great. <laughs> uh, apparently, having to review games and do videos and stuff means you play a lot of new games all the time and you don't get to play your old games ten times. But we'll see. We'll talk about what's happened and why. And Sean's not happy, but I'm going to try and make him record that. And then we're going to pick another 10x10 10 10 for 2019, which Sean, I think, is going to insist on calling a 5 by 10 <laughs> just to be more realistic. One of the things we do get asked after Essen all the time is what do you recommend out of Essen and we have to say to people it's a natural question of course and we ask it to everyone else is that when we're at Essen we don't get to play that many games because we're talking so much afterwards a lot of our play is focused around whatever the games are we're going to review so we're playing down quite a narrow corridor because naturally after Essen you want to play one game of loads and loads and loads of different things and try and get first impressions. Now, there was a bit of that in this episode is what it's for, but a lot of our plays have been on the same six games to be able to give you decent reviews on them. But Puri is here. So as his farewell to episode, what, episode one, two, three, until he's back on, I'm sure he will be back at some point very shortly, he is going to give us, and I dropped this on him a good two and a half minutes ago, so he's had a lot of time to prepare, his top three initial, hasn't played everything, but initial recommendations from Essen 2018 to have a look at. And as you know, he's sort of a medium or heavyweight Euro player, so I'm guessing it's going to be three like that. Go on, hit us, Puri. Number three. Magnus Storm. It feels very much like Terra Mystica Light in certain elements, in a good way. I think it has a lot of promise for me. I enjoyed my first game, looking forward to exploring it more. And I think for anyone who falls in that similar kind of medium heavyweight territory, I definitely want to check out. There's a funny problem with it, that my copy really smells like beer. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, it's tragic. I think um, you should be really cross with the person who did that and uh, wind them up a little bit more. <laughs> so I, I taught Magnus Storm. is the one game I definitely wanted to play at Eastbourne. And then at the end of teaching, we had something to eat, went to play, about to take my first turn, and an entire pint of beer went straight over the middle of the board. And all the other boards and cards, and it smells. It's all good. It's playable, probably. Beer but, uh, Storm anyway. the game. Yeah, yeah. Beer Storm was the Saturday night. Uh, your number two. I really liked my first game of Blackout Hong Kong. I'm not sure if I like it more or less than Great Western Trail, for example. Anyone who likes the other Fister games, I think, will probably enjoy this. I suspect in my ranking it might be a little lower than Great Western Trail. But for that first game, I had fun. I enjoyed it. I really want to go back to trying the puzzle again. So I think that definitely came out uh, a winner for me as well lower than great western trail so five out of ten on a scale of ten <laughs> beer <laughs> what it's out of ten you can't change the scale i've set the scale <laughs> we played that first game of blackout hong kong together i'm always guaranteed we're going to do a review of it properly one aspect that impressed me and there were there are highs and lows to it from that first play but one aspect that impressed me was that three of us went down three different routes and scoring looked like it wasn't going to be close initially. But when we did all the scoring, it actually was very close. I think we were all within seven points of each other. Does that sound right? Yeah, it was It was a close game, yeah. I had gone a completely different route in deck building. Follow-on had done a completely different route in terms of board placement and stuff. And you'd gone a bit of a middle route. And it all seemed to work out. So that's, that's what impressed me. So I agree with you on that bit. Some other concerns, but when we do a full review, we'll fully go over all of that and whether the concerns played out. Your number one initial recommendation, SN 2018 Pro. I think purely for the flexibility and the wide audience it's going to get, I think War Chest really impressed me and I'd have no reservations in terms of uh, recommending that to nearly everyone. Beautiful. I'm going to throw in a quick little recommendation of my own, not from SN 2018, but I know that we both got the... Deep Space D6 Kickstarter turn up this week and I've played it a couple of times you've played it it's incredibly quick to learn very smooth system a bit random there's dice rolling there's a deck of cards you're trying to protect a spaceship from a load of threats when you roll the dice they give you crew you assign them to an area and they fight off hopefully the threats or you die horribly as I have done both times even on the easy easy setting double easy I'm just not good at games uh, just a little one to keep an eye out for. If, it, if it's available, I, I've enjoyed the first couple of plays of it. There's lots of flexibility in there. And I think you quite enjoyed it as well. Yeah. Personally, I think I've got two more small recommendations just thrown there. Go for um, it. For anyone who likes terraforming Mars, I think Underwater Cities is definitely one to try. They seem to scratch that same itch. So I think highly recommended for anyone going down that route. And personally, I'm also very much looking forward to trying Concordia Venus although I haven't yet played that, so uh, opinion's still out. Lip Sealed and Underwater Cities, we're going to review it. Everything Concordia is good, so I anticipate Concordia Venus is going to be good. Okay, we've held these people for long enough. Puria, thank you so much for joining me in this recap. Thanks very much for having us, as always. 
You're very welcome. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. We hope you've had a lovely time. This has been the Game Pit Podcast. We are proud members of the Dice Tower Network. For all the goodness you can wish for in gaming, head to thedicetower.com and check out all the other podcasts on the network. If you wish to check out our overview videos of lots of these games and others, head to YouTube, youtube.com slash C slash the Game Pit, and you'll find our videos there. If you want to get hold of us, you can get us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also email us, thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com, or head to our guild on BoardGameGeek and drop us a line and start a thread there, and we'll be happy to chat with you. You can get all our episodes on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes, and you can get us on Spotify nowadays, I do believe. Thank you so much, everyone, and we'll join you next time when Sean will be back on board. Music by E. Aaron. Oh.